Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, and I'm working on it, and also the game is teaching me things. The game itself is teaching me things. I call the game a demon. I summoned it, and then it fucking told me shit. So the it, it, I'm having these experiences with saying this game is teaching me more than I'm designing it, and then I found myself actually able to do pulp sorcery, pulp sorcery. You may need to listen to this interview more than once to absorb it all. Ron was often in the room when it happened, and his memory and perspective of the first forty plus years of the role playing hobby is astounding. He founded the Forge where many of our guests and indie creators flourished, shared ideas, and together changed the course of the hobby. Ron first coined the concept of lines and veils in his game Sorcerer, and he lays claim to the term actual play. We cover the earliest years of role-playing in a way that hasn't happened before on this show. Ron steps us through the mechanics and the evolution of role-playing games. You'll hear why, for some, Ron is a controversial figure in the hobby, and for others, someone that has always looked at games and how we play differently. Now, for me, he was a great guest who didn't hold back and packed every minute of this interview with insights in the industry and how we play. My good friend Sean from Gaming and BS saved this episode. The auto quality was garbage, but his audio magic brought it back from the dead. Thanks, Sean. And also, thank you to our newest patrons, Fabian Picart, Sam Ius, Peter Thomas, William Payne, Isaac Turton, ADAS, and Eli Greeson. Because of you and the other 100-plus patrons, I continue to put out content weekly. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Ron. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads, to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to one of the most prominent names in the indie RPG world, Ron Edwards. Now, Ron is known for the Sorcerer RPG, the Forge, and most recently Adept Play. Uh, Many consider him one of the early pioneers of the indie scene. So, Ron, you have been mentioned on several of my interviews. It's nice to finally have you on and welcome to the third floor. Thank you very much, Craig. Pleasure to be here. Those are my orotund tones of required internet discourse. So <laughs> that's it. That's all you get from the rest. I talk normal. That sounds great. Um, so the one thing I'm always curious about, Ron, uh, before we jump into, you know, uh, you know, how just the games and stuff like that is that at some point, you were just a player at some point uh, before that you didn't know anything about it. This. So if you can kind of give us a little bit of your origin story, when did you discover you could roll dice and pretend to be other people? 1978. Um, this was the era of um, Holmes 
the the first oh, wow, box yeah. set. Well, wait, the first really commercially available Dungeons and Dragons, um, and then also the era of Melee and Wizard from what was then metagaming, and a few other games kicking arounds uh, that were very difficult to find or see depending on where you were. So um, whether you knew about Tunnels and Trolls, Chivalry and Sorcery, or um, Traveler, which was just popped up about that point, just before then, and then um, certainly Empire of the Petal Throne. Um, If you knew about these, you were pretty damn broad because there there were no game stores. Games had not folded into comic book stores. They were in... There was scattershot availability in hobby stores, which at the time were mainly about airplane glue and military miniatures. So um, anyway, just to get you back on to get to get us back on track. That's when I started role playing. And, and how was it introduced to you, Ron? So is this something you just came across? Was it a friend? There is a very important piece of this whole puzzle that um, I'm just an example of, um, for some reason, and I believe it was in 1976. Um, I don't have the exact reference in front of me, but in, for some reason, the, uh, syndicate press, syndicated press, uh, services, whether it was associated press or whatever, I don't know, but something like that, right? Something where everybody draws articles from nationally uh, included an article that someone had written locally, I suspect from Lake Geneva or somewhere like it, which was a glowing or at least, holy shit, look what these weirdos are doing. You know, some sort of puff piece, basically. And it was all about Dungeons and Dragons. So it was this article which then got printed all over the country, that's what synonymized the word Dungeons and Dragons with role-playing. Right. Culturally speaking, that's how it happened. And it's actually a big deal. We we can't have this grassroots romance that this game appeared, everybody started playing this game, and then everybody sort of – I don't know that you know what I mean. The grassroots romance of commerce and play yep. that just sort of blossomed and blossomed in some sort of I don't know Milton Friedmanite romance of you know merit. Okay, sure, so, sure. But it's why a lot of the other games you only found out about highly personally. I would never have found out about melee if the same kid in my junior high school that I started playing D and D well, and you see, that's the thing you started playing with three or four people in different contexts. Right. And, um, that's kind of how I got my copy of, of Holmes. I'm not even sure if I even had the box. I think all I got was the blue book. Sometimes they sold the blue book all by itself. That's another thing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really impossible to tell what's official or not. I've come across references to it being sold independently. Um, I think that I never saw the other boxed materials in my friend's possession before he gave me that blue book. Um, But anyway, so this other kid, he had melee. Anyway, see what I mean? It's all this kind of diffuse thing. And I think that's what was going on 
that next summer, a group of adults for one of the community semi-camp activity, you know, uh, uh, activities, um, did a D&D game. And that's when the player's handbook had just come out in 1978. And so, therefore... I was in that, but you see a bunch of us then. It was like, you, you sat down, there's this kid you hadn't seen for five years. And you're like, Oh, you play, you do this D and D thing. He's like, yeah. So um, <laughs> anyway, but that's very much the, the context. Right. Um, this is going way too long, but no, just, no, this so, is good. <laughs> so just to let you know, this is a, this is a little speech I make. Um, Dungeons and Dragons in particular was shockingly unconstructed. You had, the Holmes game had come out in 77 and it proceeded through several, for at least four years of reprint um, up to, and probably including the publication date of Moldvay, its successor. So that's coming along. And that was the thing you mainly found actually in any store that sold this stuff. If you were looking for D and D at the same time, 1977 was published the advanced Dungeons and Dragons monster manual. And the scuttlebutt was that this Holmes game was going to take you through levels one through three and then advanced Dungeons and Dragons. When it came out, you would graduate and start with level four and keep going. That was sort of the, the talk at the time. Um, the word basic D and D is not this game. Only later with Moldvay did they start making that part of a title or a set. It said like the basic role-playing game or something like in a blurb on the cover, but it's called Dungeons and Dragons. So um, anyway, there was that, but then that means that you also, if you went into Walden books, now this was amazing. D and D in a book, not, not, not right. A book. <laughs> yeah. Is, is in a bookstore right there next to those, Son of Origins of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee. I mean, holy shit, it's a book. So, you know, it's, it's and, and but everybody like was like advanced, advanced. I'm advanced. Now it's serious. So now it's serious. And so, you know, the, the, yeah, this monster manual. And as you know, the player handbook came out in and DM's guide came out in succession year after year after that. All of this is in the context of Dragon Magazine, which had begun almost right away. And it was very much an indicator of how D&D you were, how many Dragon Magazine issues you had and how your, much you that read. That was your cred. Well, yeah, except that I didn't have any. I think I had read like one article and I didn't really care. Um, I really liked Melee from, and then Wizard came out in 1978 and Wizard was just the shit. I mean, it was like these two so, tiny little pamphlets. Yeah, what was it, Ron? What was, what was it about Melee and, 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 and Wizard that, that really, like, tuned you uh, versus just the basic D&D? Well, first of all, um, you should know that the moment-by-moment -moment combat round options and mechanics of Melee sunk so deeply into role-playing that you know mm -hmm. those rules. You just don't, You may not know that they are those rules, but you know them. Anytime you're like, okay, this is my square or this is my hex, this is my facing on my turn. I can go half a move and attack. Um, I can shift to a defensive stance. You know, um, I've got this much to do. You know, I'm going to shift to 
shifted this, you know, after I can attack and then I can scoot this much stuff like any of that, any of it. Yeah. It's all melee. Interesting. So champions, GURPS, third edition D&D, fourth edition D&D, fifth edition D&D, all of that is not from D&D. So that was one thing. It, it also had uh, personal dexterity-based attacks and armor that blocked it. RuneQuest would have that too in a moment. Um, RuneQuest coming out, the, the first sort of lightning strike of RuneQuest in 1978, although very difficult to get and became much easier to get in the next few years. But, um, but that has its own combat system, but it also has that very personal fighting aspect, like sort of shooter, shooter view fighting. Right. And right. then um, Wizard did the same thing with bodily powered magic. You were using your strength with a personal array of spells that were based on your intelligence. And you, um, they were both dueling games, mm-hmm. but they were very much preparatory to a role playing game, which came out in 1980 called In the Labyrinth. All of this gotcha. was collectively called the Fantasy Trip. Got it. So, got it. Got the, it. But they were very, they, they, in my opinion, spoke very well to somebody. They had great color text that was very much about your character's own motivations. Nothing in the game had anything to do with that, but the color text was awesome. (laughs) And so, I mean, if you even say the names of these characters in the right company, people like drop their their stuff and start enthusiastically talking. So, um, so what I'm saying is that those sunk in hard for me. You may also not know, I don't mean to patronize you. You were a part-time, long-time role player. So I guess I should stop saying that. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people that are listening aren't, Ron, so you're okay. fine. Which is that in around 1980, you may be surprised, collective world out there, or maybe not, that, frankly, fantasy fandom and fiction didn't like role-playing very much. Oh, I did not know that. Right, And, and you would be... It, it's... It's in retrospect, we know Robert Asprin, Stephen Brust, um, Will and Emma Shetterly, and a number of other people, Roger Zelazny, were all avid role players. And if you look at their fiction, you can see it penetrate into their fiction at that time. But the, the effects that would come later with Dragonlance and as Dragonlance you know, started really rolling and as um, more explicit versions of this appeared, so that you knew you were reading a role-playing game in novel form, or that if you played this role-playing game, that you know it was you know, about this novel, right? All of that would be very, very strong within about six or seven, ten years, but not yet. And um, it was interesting to talk to science fiction and fantasy pros who basically said they basically just thought of it as a very shitty form of fanfic for quantitatively (laughs) obsessed people for exactly the kind of fans they disliked the most you know the ones who the ones who would you know grab their forearms and say but really who's stronger this guy or that guy you know and stuff like that and they just hate the writers hate that shit and so um it was kind of a troubled scene 
Um, if this was before LARPing was big, before furries, <laughs> you can imagine the opinion of LARPer furries in like the bigger hobby. Right. That's what gamers of any kind were to the the fiction. Isn't that something? So um, the the eventual basically the rest of us got old and the older ones died off, I guess. And so, you know, <laughs> so that changed, but, the, but yeah, at the time yeah. it was, I mean, and also I'll be blunt D and D as such, despite, I think several dedicated individual efforts, particularly uh, certain artists. Um, but it just wasn't catching in terms of scratching one's fantasy itch. Um, the tournament scene, which defined so much of its mechanics as they developed um, was repugnant to a lot of people who loved fantasy fiction. And so they weren't interested. And so you would get one of these tournament based scenarios and you would say, all right, forget all that. Now, who are these characters and why are they doing what they're doing? And then you would retool it into a more dynamic right. thing when you played it. Um, but, um, but by the time I was in college, most of us had stopped role-playing, mainly because we found it not to be. This is before the Satanic Panic. I'm Gen X. We didn't give a shit about Satanic Panic. We didn't give a shit yeah. about Jane, say no to drugs, right? All that's yeah. for you later. later true. We didn't give a shit about any of that. So, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so to us, that didn't bug us. I mean, we were too old for the Satanic Panic. You know, who cares what your parents think? But, the, uh, but most of us had left role-playing. I only came back to it. I mean, I did sort of scattershot attempts with a number of things, um, particularly, uh, particularly like Stormbringer and a couple of other things that I was trying to find sort of the linchpin of the literary kind of, I needed it connected to what I liked right. in the fiction um, with, you know, <laughs> I was deeply, I mean, I was deeply into Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and stuff like that. And I yep. was not into the derived Conan at all. No secondary authors, no DeCamp, no Carter. <laughs> you know, I, I, I respected the Marvel comic book, which when Roy, Roy Thomas was doing it was really faithful to Howard. It was good. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but not the movie. I was an anti, anti comic oh, no. guy. Yeah. And I'm sure it's actually kind of a fun movie of a movie. Exactly. But we're, and we're talking about why I'm here for fantasy. So I have a right. copy it doesn't come of from the Howard. It doesn't come from the Howard region right. of France. And, so, <laughs> yeah. and I, I exactly. And so I've got, you know, a copy of the hour of the dragon in one hand, which at the time was published as Conan the Conqueror. And in my other hand, I've got a copy of death's master by Tanith Lee, which is this wonderful psychedelic sex filled romp, demonic romp. Right. And those I've got one in each hand and I'm like, a role play, but this, this is what we're doing. <laughs> this yeah. is what I'm here for. And it wasn't working. It wasn't working. So, um, champions brought me in champions. Brought that's me where I, that's where I was headed. So, you know, and I, as I've gone through and talked to a lot of people about their origin stories, um, that's about it's some, some, a lot of similarities, uh, and, you know, taking that break from college and it sounds like you, uh, were headed towards champions, bringing you back, but, did you miss it um, or was it just champions finally scratched an itch? No, I was always had my, my antenna up the number of people that I knew and particularly people who um, 
came from, I mean, had a wide variety of lifestyles and interests. Um, all of us kind of had one antenna up, you know, we had shown up at like the campus role-playing club once and kind of looked yeah. around and like, ah, not really for me. And, but, but we had done it right. A lot of us. And, and this also was a time when it, and this lasted a long time. And I'm, I bet you remember it well, is that whole thing of people just not wanting to admit it. Yeah, oh yeah. So, so I mean it was very closeted. I mean you you'd talk very about it so. and everybody would kind of like do this and sort yeah. of fly away from you. And then and one of the people involved who was there, they'll sidle up to you later. Like, yep. hey, you know, hey, you, you were into that? You were into yeah. that? You know, yeah, it, 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 so you it felt like you had to have a password and right. yeah. So um that's and so we outed ourselves. That was a big thing for my campus group, my college groups. And then the plane that I did after that, which was basically after that, you know, from 1986 on, on nonstop, just nonstop. Um, and I brought it wherever I went. And I even put like ads out in student papers and stuff when I moved somewhere else. And and I was just like, OK, tits out, role playing. This is fun. No shame. This is not a secret. It's not a vice. And um, this is kind of a, of a big deal for me. Right. This is an activity and it has merit. So anyway, uh, without going into all the details, Champions brought me back, um, and that was my, my primary game for many years, although I played many others. We played Rollmaster, Cyberpunk, you know, tons and tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, I will say that one thing you said a little earlier made me say, I better get back to that before I forget. Here's my thing. I think that being a role player is the primary identity and that I have not lost it. I have not changed. I have not moved out of that status from that into anything else. It is what I do. And inside that, I think some of us have a personality disorder. <laughs> okay. And that personality disorder says, I feel like designing some rules. And Sometimes one doesn't even know one has it. And therefore, at the table, five years into your game with everybody, someone else sits down at the game, says, oh, we're playing this. The they start playing? playing. They're like, what the fuck are you playing here? Right? <laughs> exactly. And so you've done game design. You just you know, didn't know it. And that's cool. Right. That's cool. Same thing if you have it in a scritchy scratch notebook, because a whole lot of you listening out there do. Um. You would not believe how many of the cardboard shirt boxes from the 80s or old biology notebooks that you were supposed to be taking notes in and all that stuff have role-playing games in them that you yeah. wrote. So those are all, that's all going on and sometimes they get played. And I think an amazing amount of creative intuition and authenticity goes into those. So that's why I consider that to be the healthy or at least manageable form of the personality disorder. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I'd be curious, Ron. But wait, you know, hold on a sec. Uh, oh, please. Then there's the severe form of the personality disorder. <laughs> which means for some reason unknown to anybody on this earth, you want to publish what you did. Yeah. And that's fine, but it is a severe condition and it needs management. It needs support. It needs, you know, mitigation from others. It needs 
all the things that a, a condition of that sort needs. Um, but that's what I'm trying to say. I'm a role player. I'm not anything else. If you deviate from that and you start to design and publish, goodbye. I'm done. <laughs> you're, you're out of my zone. I, I do not talk to people who don't play or who consider themselves, oh, I'm a designer now. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> there's a pool in the back you can drown yourself in if you talk. Yeah, you, I, I, I get that, right? I get that. It, um, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I was I was going to say, um, you know, you see that in, the, in in miniature gaming, too. Um, you know, if I talk to people that say, you know, yeah, I, I you know, I, I do game design. I create game design. Well, what do you play? And then you know, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, you know, if you're not playing it, then I then I don't know why we're talking, because uh, I completely understand what you're saying. So I'd be curious as an adult. Ron looks back on those times, right, where you rediscovered, uh, you know, you fell in love with it. You left it. You come back to it with champions. You identify yourself as a role player. As as someone now looking backwards, what do you think was the early hooks? What what was it that just got you in high school, allowed you to take some time away, but kept your radar going and had you come back and then eventually would become a big part of your adult life as well? Um, what, do you, what do you think it was re- looking retrospectively? It's extremely straightforward, and it's also completely integrated with some of the other topics that you're planning on asking me. Um, It has to do with my thoughts on what we do as a medium. Now that's a big deal. What I just said that this activity is a medium. So one of the important things about a medium is that it can contain any content that the practitioner of the moment wants to put into it. Right. It also means as a medium that it can be, um, okay, maybe this is the wrong word, but distorted through particular procedures of use. Different people can punch the medium in particular ways that make somebody within the practitioners, I would say, oh, you're totally not like me. Not if you're using the medium like that. But you see, really, we are using the same medium. Even Even if the individual practitioners have a thing about how each other is doing it. But the medium itself is not uniform. It is shaped by its use in those particular people. And that medium is composed not of talking and not of hearing, but of listening. Listening is what matters because when the medium is active, when you actually have the medium, like you can say, do we or don't we have a canvas? It's a very straightforward thing. If you're going to be a painter, you do or you don't have a freaking thing to paint on. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, this is the same thing with this. Unless people are listening, which means that they are incorporating what other people are saying and reincorporating it through how they're speaking, treating what has been done through play as a new now of the of the microsecond for what they put in. Um, and it doesn't matter if what they imagine is absolutely synonymous. Of course it doesn't imagine. You know, for you, the... The, the arched roof is, you know, broad in this church and while we're playing this game. And for me over here, I'm imagining a much higher arched roof. It, it's okay, right? But what we are saying is easily reincorporated by one another. That's the medium right there. And with that medium as something that you can do things in, um, It is, I think, the best analogy 
is not theater or radio. In fact, I think both of them are extraordinarily poor. Um, excuse me. The best analogy is music. Oh, okay. And I'm not really talking about sort of the romantic jam session where everybody's like strumming away, you know, doing kind of the cat walking on the keyboards thing. But I'm also not talking about symphonic music that we have rehearsed for the performance. I'm not talking right. about that either. If anything, it's closer to the former, but I don't really want to over analogize. <laughs> what I'm really saying is that here we are using instrumentation. We are using instrumentation. And the and so anything that anyone ever talks about as system is instrumentation for how we know what to take in and be able to reincorporate. Right, right. That's what it is. So all of this is exciting to me. I mean, I responded to it as that medium. And every single time it became about us being taken through someone else's delivered experience, I bounced off it. And every single time it became about whatever genre, external genre, or internal gaming-oriented genre, because D&D became its own genre like right. that, right? Yep. Either one. Um, I bounced off it. And any time that we... When, when, when you'd read a text and it was extraordinarily clear when portions of the text went in that direction, you know, that the, the RPGA tradition of D&D became very paternalistic, very much shepherding people through the, the steps of the modules. Um, that was first they were tournament, you know, challenges. Then they became these these sort of walkthroughs. Um, and a lot of people got trained in those. And so that sort of became the standard for what a module was supposed to be. And people learn. They don't learn from core books. People learn from modules. People learn True. from scenarios, period. Yep. So that's that effect really kept driving me away from fantasy, away from fantasy. And I loathed a lot of the fantasy published in the late 80s, too. I just I hated it. And um, and I have never really been a dedicated fantasy reader like what's out, what's new ever since, although I still read tons. But like right now, what am I reading? High Couch of Silistra by Janet Morris. Very right, nice. From the mid 70s. Um, yeah, I'm not totally retro. I mean, I'll read a good book someone's, but it's, but it's always recommended. It's all these days. It's always recommended. So does this kind of giving you kind of an idea of it, what it, it does. really grabbed me? It was the potential of being there in the medium. The instrumentation yeah. can contain immense constraints, like a, a, a dedicated setting or a dedicated set of instrumentation for just how we get through a combat or do a combat. But what happens when somebody, I mean, I'll just throw one at you, right? Um, you are telling, your character is telling uh, the bandit that um, we would all do better if you guys go and pick on someone else. <laughs> How many role-playing games do you know where the instrumentation actually permits you to continue to use the reincorporation in good faith to know what happens? Not that many. 
So I'm not saying it all needs to be modeled with a reaction table or anything. I am saying that we need to know how to manage things that happen in play. Role-playing games historically developed weird blind spots for that. And play <laughs> just kind of detours yeah. around them, you know, or, or yeah. is hand-waved through. Um, a lot of role-playing historically uh, falls into what I call the Merc, when we're not sure how our instrumentation is supposed to, you know, do what is happening or where your character is relative to what is happening. And, yeah. and everybody starts to try to take over basically through volume or through humor or something. So, and it's kind of a dishonest way to manage the medium at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I've always been very into, well, that's weird. You know, once we're in the middle of this combat, I am fine in terms of like whether I can get my ax thrown at that guy or not and when, but for some reason outside of combat, well, this is what I'm always asking people, right? Um, your friend role-playing is sick of you palavering with this bandit. And the other bandit, you know, with the four other bandits standing there, the other bandit is is annoying as hell, right? He GM's playing that bandit. is just a huge pain in the ass. And your friend is like, you know, freaking elf wizard, blah, 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 blah. Shut up. I throw my axe at that guy. Right. When we start the combat mechanics, is the axe in the air or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. So you see what I mean by Merc? There's there's weird patches of Merc in some cases are so instantiated into play through the fact that people are just writing role-playing games based on the role-playing games that they know. Right. That's and there's lots of others too. Um but the, the thing was, I was beginning to understand, especially through playing champions, I was beginning to understand what was and wasn't being done with the instrumentation. Interesting. Um, and particularly because I didn't want to be front-loading plot. But I'm using comic books as my, of a particular era of, of, as my model, and so is everybody else that I'm playing with. And we knew that we didn't want to just slavishly conform, you know, to that. We wanted it to be emergent. And so, but it was very clear, you know, okay, we're going to have these arcs that are based on character conflict. There was a brilliant champion, champion supplement that was released in the mid late eighties um, coming from the early days of champions was, was finally published. And it was absolutely brilliant about character conflict and it's emergent events that were intuitively built on by the player reacting to what had happened. And that's what created story. Wow. And it's, it's by Aaron Alston. It's called strike force. And it's a, a seminal text in role playing. And so um, I was like, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is great. And of course we made every imaginable mistake in the book. <laughs> sure. Trying to do this. And I could not at the time we're talking maybe 1991 now trying to figure out why this time, what seemed like exactly the right thing for the teen romance to blossom and then become fraught as, you know, the NPC side of it, you know, lost control and all that stuff was like, so there, and it was awful. And the player hated my guts and was like, what the hell, you know? And I, but I, I'm scratching my head and going, but like 10 sessions ago, we had that whole sequence with these emotions and that going on. And it was, and, and I was just like in awe of what was exploding at the table. And, and we had this saga 
you know? Yeah. And what's the difference? How come? And so around this time is when also in the early 90s is when you're getting a lot of games coming out that are challenging systemic assumptions. Um, it's, it's sort of, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I had an experience and people are, I don't know what people are going to think of this, but I had an experience at 27. Um, I caught the chicken pox. I had never had it as a kid. Wow. And it turns out the vaccine just had become available. It was not, or had been invented, but was barely available. Right. So I did. So I like missed the vaccine by like this much. Okay. And I had a heinous case of chicken pox. I don't know if you know what that means for an adult, but it was just awful. And so uh, like leprosy awful. And wow. so I was, and I was shattered for like a year. My health was completely. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, my health was completely broken. I was like a skeleton. So. I'd spent a lot of that time like in a, and I just finished my master's. Right. So, you know, I was kind of in this <laughs> kind of in this trough, right. Of, of recovery of all kinds. And so I basically studied, I studied Amber. I studied over the edge. I studied vampire. I studied now reading is not good enough. I will be the first to tell you role playing reading is not good enough, but at this time, I was in a position to soak up what was being said. I was interested in it as text. As this is an insight. These All these people are my age, right? All of the people I'm talking about writing these things, they're all my age. And so, and I knew that they were just other role players. And so all that you need to do was to kind of soak up what you can of what they were saying, saying, if I had to say what I think, what would I say? And then I wanted to play a lot of these things, too. So that kind of put me into the frame of mind of saying, actually, we can work with this medium. We can, you know, we can actually try to understand. We can do things we want to do. We can try the instrumentation. And it's okay. There's a thousand things to try. Look at all the different variables. We've got games with four numbers. Mm -hmm. And we've got games with 400 numbers. Right. If we're talking about active at a, in a given moment of play, four numbers active, maybe even down to one or two active at a given moment of play. Then yep. over here, dozens and dozens. Does that mean anything? Actually, I started looking at the games going, you know, I don't think that means anything. I just think we're talking <laughs> about bigger Boolean sets. Right? I mean, not for a lot of them. So let's start looking for when the sets are different. When it's not just subdivisions of the same sets, let's start looking at things where the sub where the sets are different. Um, I trained in multivariate statistics. I was really interested in um, uh, principal components analysis, eigenvectors, if you know what those are. And so I was really yeah. into eigenvectors. And so I was really interested in how a thousand different variables could produce multidimensional lines that go in different directions. And so I was really, I was interested. Are there eigenvectors of role-playing design? <laughs> so, and, and therefore, yes, you could have, this has a dice pool and this one has a dice pool, but they load with the other variables differently so that this game design effect goes this way, that game design effect goes the other way. So I was pretty well sort of conceptually prepared to start being very comparative about this. And I think anyway, and so um, that's when I started designing. 
Interesting. Right. Now, it sounds to me like the, the the year of the pox was was a turning point for you. Yeah. Then. I had, now um, that I think about it, I had designed a couple of things as knockoffs of Wizard <laughs> before that. And I had already just begun to have the ideas, just begun to have the ideas of, listen, Stormbrook, Ken St. Andre was on the right track with his demon summoning only magic. <laughs> I want that. I want that. I want the and and the 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 spirit magic inside the the shaman magic inside RuneQuest, which in the original RuneQuest, I, I like to make fun of it really because it's so cool. But you, the point is that you have this game that's pretty. It's it's fine grains, but only to a certain level the whole way through. And then you step into those rules, and all of a sudden you're learning actually how to be a shaman. You know, I mean, it's like really <laughs> right. like detailed in there. And that little sub game in there, I always said, you know what? That that can be its own thing. That's cool. So I was thinking about all that stuff. Those were that's what was on my mind. The year of the pox, you know, kind of was my recovery moment of trying right. putting this stuff together. That's great. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, creators, and learn about the approach to their work. And I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do next with Ron. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about Ron picking up this disorder of design and putting together a little game called Sorcerer. We'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a coupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So now that we have, um, well, let me start off by saying it's it's obvious, hopefully, to you now why I wanted to have Ron on the show. Um, uh, we've had a lot of people come on the show that talk about 
you know, how they approach their design of their game. And the, um, the thing that I wanted um, to do with Ron, which we've already started doing is really getting um, a whole next level analysis of this Ron um, to, to a fault might have spent more time thinking about this than any of us would have considered. And uh, that's exciting to me, but let's go back in time, Ron, at some point you, you, you mentioned you, you fiddled around with some designs. Do you consider sorcerer kind of your first serious embark into into design well the first uh sets that i started playing with kept coming back to the themes of and they were mostly sword and sorcery because at that time i was deeply unhappy with the absolute eclipse of pulp sword and sorcery it has been revived as of about 2012 (laughs) it has been revived but before that, or before a few years before that, nobody knew what Pulp Sword and Sorcery was like, except for highly specialized readers. And its revival in the 60s and 70s with its own properties. But all of that had been eclipsed by 80s fantasy. 80, I mean, to, for most people, you know, fantasy is the Bulgariad and Forgotten Realms. Period. And it was... Uh, and, and, and intertwined with fantasy role-playing in a way that was deeply mutually supportive and mutually deeply limiting. So those, that's what, that's fantasy. You know, I read fantasy. That's what they read. So to be reading that stuff, to have the, the shelf that I had, um, was very isolated. And don't forget, pre-internet. In yeah. any fashion that most of us would call the internet. It was just when I started in the PhD program, it was just beginning to roll, just beginning to get going, just beginning to, you know, the, the, to sort of shape itself. So no Google, no PayPal, no platforms of any kind, um, just Usenets, right? And so at this time, I guess there's a few to to answer your question. Yes, but. Okay. Because my first thing, like everybody, I think, or many people is to take a system that is, is quite satisfying to you in many ways. And then you start yanking on pieces of it. And you may be interested to know that my first attempt was actually a hack of cyberpunk. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) And so of the original cyberpunk. Yeah. Yeah. 1989. The old it, black and white one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sitting right there. So anyway, the uh, the take that I had was very oriented to that game's mechanic of humanity. And the fact that they had a death spiral where your behavior became more and more and more limited. Um, I was going not quite where I'm at here. I was really interested in the sort of soul-scarred, you know, crazy dirks, crazy dudes yeah. um, in the sources that I was have been mentioning. And what Im- interested me was that it was a choice every time. Right. And so I was, in, I was going, huh, all right, all right, we're, we're sort of rocking with this somehow. Um, doing things, really diving into things like over the edge – um, let me realize that I could be as minimalistic as I wanted. And I found myself busting back to wizard. So if you look at 
the rules of wizard. And then you say, oh, look, well, if you instead treat the dice as units rather than the pips on the dice, mm-hmm. you'll see most of Sorcerer's Mechanics right there. Interesting. So that was what I learned was to start thinking about, okay, some games use the die as a unit in terms of what it does on and off, and other games use the die as a source of a range of quantities. Both are good or both are bad. Remember what I said, how does it load with the rest of the variables? Sure. And so um, you end up with a, a, a sort of basically almost a hack of wizard with the design <laughs> sensibilities of over the edge, with the kind of consequences of cyberpunk. So the, the, these are sort of what was going on. And so really 1992-ish was really when I started to scribble. 1994, I think, was my first serious attempt to play. Um, and I was, and I was, this is something snapped. Yes, I was in, the, <laughs> I was in the design disorder. I'm like, I'm making this. I mean, if I keep playing it, if I keep playing it, I'm going to make it. It will become a makeable. It will become a made thing. And so I, that's exactly what I did. By 1996, I had a playable thing. And on the brand new spanking, stinking of, you know, stinking of, of birth fluids internet, um, I put it up to be available um, using actually a shareware model. Um, and and we had to write code for this shit. Okay. People had to fill in a thing, which was their email and hit submit. And I just got an automatic email with a bunch of gobbledygook in it, just code. Their email was in there somewhere. And (laughs) I would send them an email with the file attached. And since no files were compatible with anything, they hadn't even figured out PDFs yet. PDFs got figured out a few years later when everybody said, wait a minute, we already have a compatible file format. What on earth? You know, everybody was fighting funny, over who was going to like come out with the, 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 the universal file format, you know, and, and be able to like make all the money off it. And fuck, the thing's been sitting in our printers the whole time. Right? <laughs> That's <knew>. funny. <laughs> right. It's true. But we didn't know that. And so therefore it was, if you can believe it, an ASCII file. Oh, sure. I do believe right? that. And I'm so, old enough to know all, yeah. remember all of this, right? <laughs> Excellent. So anyway, they'd get that. And if they liked it, and I included my address, my mailing address in the, in the email that I sent. And if they liked it, they sent me $5 cash in an envelope. That's cool. And I got a whole bunch of $5 bills in the mail. <laughs> so that's, that's, what we, that's how I did it. And I, to my knowledge, am the first person to do commerce for role-playing game in digital form only. Um, a lot of people were starting to make them available for send away. You sent them money and they would send you the game. I have a few of those from that time, but then a lot of people were putting up stuff for free, but this was the first one. And I believe two years later, I was the first to sell PDFs. I think Monty Cook did it like after me, like by a month or something. And but, that's something. So call it simultaneous. I'm, I'm okay with that. But it was right there. But yes, so I'm working on the game through this. So looking at Sorcerer, and it could the answer could be both. Was it a thematic drive or a mechanics drive that, that led you into saying, I need to make this, and this is what it's becoming? Was it you wanting to def- redefine what, what the thematic game space was? 
um, when you talk about the, you know, the pulp fantasy or was it you meddling and getting mechanics? What drove the process of developing Sorcerer for you? Remember my, my analogy of instrumentation. That's a little bit like saying, did you want the trumpet to sound like that? Or did you want to work on the metallurgy? And it ended up sounding like that. Yeah. The, the, to me, those are deeply intertwined issues. Right. And if you're, and remember, you're talking to a trumpet player, right? And so, so, or an instrument or a musician who's like, I want to do this and I need a thing. And so to say, well, did, were you working on the materials? Were you interested in like the sound and the pressure and the hydraulics and the, right. you know, and the resonance or were you trying to get a certain sound and the person's going to kind of look at you and go, <laughs> can you not ask that question? Right? Sure. I, so, decoupling is it's a, it's a, it's problematic. There, is what you're there saying. isn't a decouple. It makes no sense. Right. So in, not if you look at it that way. So, which I did. And so you should know that I now had my ears out big time to people talking about how role-playing worked. The, the biggest volume, the, the, the thing that had the biggest volume at the time was the Hogshead Publishing Group. Um, and the little games they were putting out, and also the journal that they were putting out. Um, I kind of bounced off this, to tell you the truth. I did not actually say, oh, I found my tribe. I was like, not not seeing where you're going with this, or I'm not seeing what you're doing. What you're doing isn't where I'm at, or what I think is happening with this medium. They had their own way of looking at it and their own goals, and I could see that's not what I thought. Yep. Um, and also, uh, there was a group on, uh, a Usenet forum that, um, I was not part of. In fact, I stayed far away from all such things. Um, sort of the, 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 the dark and the darkened and sort of mutant prehistory of today's social media. Right. So, um, Perhaps more honest, actually, than today's social media, however, right? You know, it's a, it doesn't take much, but yeah, I know yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, at, least, <laughs> at least it was straightforwardly tooth and claw, right? So, but anyway, I didn't like that. And so, but I didn't, I learned about discussions about some ideas about role playing that I found extremely interesting because they focused on personal aesthetic drives as to why you were sitting down and doing this and what you hoped to experience in it as right. an encompassing variable, or as I saw of it as an encompassing variable. Now, we're probably getting ahead, but you see, the trouble is these things are, are simultaneous in time. Yeah, so yeah, the yeah. development of Sorcerer from a playable thing in 1996 into its book published form in 2000 um, is now utterly synonymous with me taking this body of thought and going, what am I going to do with that? Because as soon as I sort of delved into what they were saying, again, okay, all respect to the people involved, but I think those discussions, which was called the threefold, went, they, I think they fell off the tracks. They fell, fell off, they crashed their car, right? That conversation gotcha. did not go. So, um, so when I'm sitting here going, but I think there's something here. Now, I was, again, seeking for terminology, and being very academic in many ways, I didn't want to reinvent a term that someone else had already made. So the only person who'd come up with some taxonomy for game mechanics was Jonathan Tweet in his game Everwing. 
And he talked about different kinds of mechanics that he called fortune, karma, and drama. And then you had the threefold, and they were talking about a completely different variable of these aesthetic drives and interactive outcomes that made you basically want to be there and also to do your thing in it. And um, and I, I quite liked that. The way they crashed the car is that they, they suddenly started talking about them as bodies of technique. Oh, okay. Right. And so they, they basically said, oh, well, if you're into this, then you would play like that. Well, if you're into that, you would play like this. And so if you were into what they called um, what they called dramatism, then clearly you didn't want fucking dice, right? You know, stuff like that. So you see what I mean, though? They, were, they, were, they, they fell into that trap. Super easy to fall into. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not worth what I'm into here. Because I was real, I'm real into the instrumentation. The instrumentation creates constraint. Constraints bounce is what I call it today. All right. And so um, back then, I was looking at these bodies of terms, and I saw that there was already a redundancy. Tweet had drama as a particular technique. They had dramatism as an aesthetic drive. And I said, well, I'm going to write that, you know, 1998, I kind of write an essay where I say, hey, can we start asking questions? Can we actually start asking questions about the instrumentation? That essay was called System Does Matter. And so I laid out those bodies of terms, none of them by me. And I said, look, just so we don't go crazy, let's rename this dramatism thing. We'll call it, and I pull out of the air, narrativism, just to replace that. Right. So there you get the origins of GNS, gameism, simulationism, <laughs> narrativism. Two of those terms are from the threefold. threefold. The other one is just my renaming of it, just to remove the redundancy from the other body of work. No other reason. And um, and then as time went by and I realized that I really didn't really think the threefold was on the right track, I said, let's let's shift it all. I'm going to call that body of variables creative agenda, and I'm going to give them their own names. So that was a little bit later. That's when I started calling what I was doing its own thing and said the big model. Now, however, I've gotten ahead of myself because by then the forge has begun. So okay. this is all in the late 90s, right? I'm working up Sorcerer. I mean, even though that first version was now available, I'm playing the hell out of it and actually doing, I think, the necessary late stage game design. I'm also writing up Sorcerer and Sword and playing it simultaneously. And so therefore, because I had shifted out of the Sword and Sorcery, because nobody knew what I was talking about. And I kept having to explain it. And I was like, the hell with it. All right, you want modern? I'll do modern. Fine. So anyway, and besides Hellblazer, you know, I've been reading Hellblazer for years. Why not, right? So my take here is that I have gone through this. And at the same time, I've kind of dipped my toe in the waters of what all these other people are saying and trying to create, use as much as what people have contributed as, as I possibly can. And so, and to try to create a dialogue about that, I find a place on the internet called the Gaming Outpost where, you know, God bless them and to their eternal sorrow, actually was able to set up a little sub forum of my own where we started talking about this. RPG Net was happily leaping about in silly directions all the time right. and was also a fertile place to go and occasionally say something. And maybe like two people would go, that was interesting. What was that, right, in, in, inside all the cacophony? So also, um, I got very, very interested 
in the publishing thing at this time. So you can see where this is going. First of all, there's me working on this game. There's me thinking about how games work, trying to pull some ideas together. There's me now starting to interact socially with a bit of a space of my own. That's going. And at this point, I start getting nibbles because Sorcerer, unbeknownst to me, is now being read and looked at and sometimes played by luminaries. I have no idea, <laughs> right, but it's happening. And I've had a few reviews and a couple of little zines and stuff like that. And this is back when zines still got mailed to you. Sure. sure. So um, I'm, I'm in, I'm, that's sort of happening. I'm, I'm a little surprised too. I'm kind of like, wait, somebody besides the five people I know are, you know, looking at this. <laughs> I've only got $25. <laughs> what the hell? Exactly. Who are you? <laughs> right. So, um, no, that, that this sort of thing is, is happening though. And I'm going, well, holy crap. So, and I'm working on it. And also the game is teaching me things. The game itself is teaching me things. I call the game a demon. I summoned it and then it fucking told me shit, right? So the it, it, I'm having these experiences with saying this game is teaching me more than I'm designing it. And then I found myself actually able to do pulp sorcery. Pulp sorcery. Um, and so we're doing that. At the same time, I am willing, oh, and I have a mailing list, a sorcerer mailing list. So I am willy-nilly creating or sitting in a little community. It's happening. Um, so all the time that that is happening, um, I start getting nibbles and interest from people who publish role-playing games coming to me. I have never been to a role-playing convention at this time. I had never gone to Gen Con, nothing. And so um, I found it interesting. Now, I was heavily into comics. And I knew a lot of comics pros. And I paid a lot of attention to their employment circumstances. I had been, <laughs> I do not know how this happened, but I had been at like an executive writers and artists like professional meeting in Chicago with DC. And I mean, I... I had ended up there and through invitation and was, you know, introduced around and I was getting that weird feeling of, oh, this, this is Ron. Oh, Ron. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> this is a while ago. This is a few years before this. We'll sure. talk about, but I'm giving you this as an example of some of my experiences. And then when they sat down for the meeting, I was sort of expecting for like somebody to like clap me on the shoulder, or take me over to the bar and like let the fan, you know, hang out yeah. over there. No, they fucking sat me down. I'm like, they're in between the editor on this side and that writer on this side. And I'm like, well, how did that happen, Ron? Like how, like, what were you doing? This is a long story. Well, I want to hear it. Are like, you what, sure? what were you? I, I do. Only, okay. Footnote. Because first I want to tie it to what I was saying. I brought it up for a reason. I brought it up for a reason that I knew a shitload about independent and non-independent comics publishing from the other side. I was that kind of person who knew comics for prose. I, you know, it was a reader. I'd gotten some letters published, but then there was a snap. And all of a sudden I was on this other side of the process. And, um, and I saw what it was like for them. The reason I brought up that meeting was how badly the editors abused and the, the managers abused the creators, the way they spoke to them, what they had to put up with. It was horrific, absolutely horrific. 
in the comic industry is in, uh, notorious for that. Sure. Um, and this was, yeah. this was early nineties. So, and it was absolutely horrific. I mean, to the point where I almost like picked up a knife, you know, and went after somebody because they were just so that bad. And I told myself, now remember, I was a person who was doing very well in academic science. I got my master's, which at that particular university was a fairly substantive thing and moving into the PhD and, um, and, and had my, my sights on my academic career. I had publications as a graduate student. I had a, you know, a, a very strong teaching record, all kinds of things. So I've, I was very solid in my, my life at this time. Um, paid like a waiter, as marginal <laughs> as all graduate students, worse than a waiter. Sure. I don't get tips. I mean, and so, I mean, I was, I was marginal as hell as a graduate student, but I was, I was feeling pretty weighty in my, yeah. my zone. So nobody, nobody talks down to me. Right. So this, so I'm like, why are all these amazing creators who put out all these great comics listening to this, you know, 28 year old asshole with tassel loafers talk to them this way? I mean, come on. Yeah. So that's what I'm getting at. I had decided that should I be involved in pop culture, I was going to pay attention to the independent comic book creators. I was, I mean, he's very controversial and people have 10 million opinions about him, but everything he did regarding owning your own work is notable. And that's Dave Sim with Service the Aardvark and a bunch of other people like that, of people who are adjacent or he was adjacent to or all this huge raft. And I paid strict attention to all of their economic ups and downs and started asking the right questions to all the pros I knew and people like that. And so I had that very deeply in my mind. Right. And very quickly after one or two contacts with the, with the, the, and you see the role-playing so-called industry is kind of like to the comics industry as, you know, they, as sort of a, okay. The comics books industry at that time wanted to be the movie industry so bad yeah. And the role-playing industry wanted to be the comic book industry so bad, right? And so, anyway, but that's how they acted. Even when they were being friendly and chummy and, you know, we're all in it together and you, you'll always be able to do what you want and all this stuff. And I'm just thinking about this last 10 years of me being so deeply embedded with the, the comics. I mean, literally embedded, right, in the culture of making comics. Now it's like... <laughs> Fuck you. you know? <laughs> sure. You're out of your mind. I know you're, you are a penny any version of the very same people that I've been watching for 10 years. And at I've that, seen this movie. Yeah. Not only that, but you're like a really low rent version of it. So um, I, uh, so I said, no, I'll just do, I'm, I'm doing it my way. I'm Drew Hay with Poison Elves. Same thing. I'm doing it his way. Um, and so I, went ahead um, and said, I'll just start putting out this game myself. So do you see what I mean? And especially because there it is, there's, there's this whole internet thing. So all these things are happening at once. The intellectualism, the design and play. I've also been playing experimentally. That's really kicked in at, after that point of the early nineties of saying, I'm going to play every game I can in good faith, in good faith. I'm going to try this thing. We're going to see how it plays. Um, we are going to enjoy ourselves. We're not going to test it. <laughs> right, We're testing right. it. We're playing it. And I haven't stopped. I mean, that, that boomed and I have not. I've played so many games and I do so in good faith to enjoy them. And I found that to be a wonderfully liberating experience. 
You're not trying to sell it to your friends. Oh, I found the right game. We finally found it. We finally found the game. You know, no, none of this. No, no, it's not a marriage. This is an activity and there are thousands of instruments. Let's enjoy. And they make different music. You, you may have to bring a completely different aesthetic. You're to play this. It doesn't work for you. You're going to have to find a different kind of artistry to do this. So that was it. So all of that is really cresting in the late nineties. It, it hits an inflection point basically. So, um, through a series of the usual missteps, which are the same as for any band, like a rock band, and read the early years of any rock band. Okay, now just translate that into me trying to do shit with different people. And you end up with The Forge. Um, and that's where I kind of pull it together. Got it. Well, got it. let's do this. Let's take a quick break, Ron, because um, the forge is has been brought up on this show so many times, and uh, you have a, have a very unique view on it um, because of your participation and, and and what your relationship is with the forge. So let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about the forge. I want to talk about when it really became um, what is obviously a breeding ground for so many of the designs and games that we play today. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. I'm trying to figure out the best way to do this, Ron. So let's do this. Let's assume. So the term the forge is thrown around on this show several times, right? Where I've had people go, you know, you know, and I was talking to the people on the forge and, you know, they, I had some people on the forge give me these thoughts and, you know, there's a discussion on the forge and that led to this. Um, and, and I realized that for my, a lot of my listeners and for me initially too, having, you know, Rumpelstiltskin to all of this time, I wasn't playing role playing games during this time. Um, let's step a little bit backwards here and let's talk if we can, Ron, about what is the forge and where did the forge come from? Oh, golly, you really want to go through that whole rock band origin thing. All right, I'm going to try to keep that part brief because the real question is, what is it? But briefly, um, I and two other people proposed to each other to create a website. And the purpose of the website would be to collect all the cool little independently made role-playing games that we could find that were scattered all over the internet on GeoCities sites and God knows <laughs> what, and, um, and actually give them a platform, basically give them a place that you could go and you could see this batch of games. And um, there were a couple of other people who were kind of doing this in a very list-oriented way. Um, one was named a guy named Eric, Eric's Free RPG Page, which was a, a goldmine, by the way. Um, and so what we wanted, though, was to play the games. So 
we would talk. Now we didn't have, you know, YouTube or anything like that. So yeah. we were talking at that time about reviews, but I didn't really like that. Reviews is such a Ponzi bullshit. I mean, the reviewers are always on the side of the product of the, or of, <laughs> yeah. of the production industry at the very least. Yeah. Even panning of something means you are in the power position being able to do it as a decision maker. You're not very much so. You're not a part of the audience. You know, screw you. I hate reviewers. And so um in so I didn't really want to do that, but that was kind of the only language we had for it. But anyway, so one of those guys whose name was Ed Healy, and I put the site together and he gave it its name, Hephaestus Forge. Mm-hmm. Um and that led to there there wasn't like a breakdown between us there was just different logistic shit that made everything not work right and then a friend of both of ours through oh you know remember we've been interacting at the gaming outpost and through the sorcerer mailing list all of us the whole time interesting so that's the actual origin of all of this right. my form at the gaming outpost and the sorcerer mailing list and then people there we're all three and other people are all pulling in weird little games um, that they're making up and mostly just posting online and no one ever sees them. Right. So, and some of them are freaking brilliant. We found this one weirdo guy named Jared Sorensen. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and he was like, Ooh, you know, look more weirdos. Right. So, <laughs> so there is a bunch of, of people and, um, they, the, the third guy that, uh, that started talking with me about this, but he didn't get involved in setting up his face forge but he was really big in the early discussions of all this was Mike Merles who later went on to publishing in the more mainstream, if that's the right word. Um, so anyway, uh, the, the guy who comes in now, who is just basically now just me and him is Clinton Nixon. So Clinton Nixon and I set up a new website. Um, Ed had called it, had given the site, the URL indie, indie RPGs, one word. And that whole URL was no longer the, the domain. Forget all that stuff, right? Hell in a handbasket. So Clinton stuck a hyphen in there. So indie dash RPGs. So yep. that's our new doing. So that was the thing. And by indie, you can see where I'm going with this. It's straight out of comics. It means creator owned. Doesn't mean anything else. The content, like I said, the medium is the medium, right? That's the contents of no interest whatsoever, except insofar as we're interested in what you're doing, that you're doing it. So we also had learned from studying RPGNet and Clinton and I studied RPGNet like anthropologists. <laughs> and we said, what don't we like? What do we like? We're going to do a forum and we're going to set up sections and we're going to, and it's going to be like a tiny thing in comparison, really tiny. You're going to be able right. to see the whole thing at once. Yep. Like just by scrolling down a little bit, you'll see the whole thing. And you will have only so many functions. There's no chat, hangout, you know, open discussion, none of that. Um, and I basically am using, you know, science teacher logic. I'm like, hey, we're here for a purpose. Here, you can talk about this stuff. Here, you can talk about that stuff. And you're going to treat people decently. And so I brought basically my standards for how people should talk to one another. I quickly found myself in the position of having to explain to people, you're not on the internet when you come here. Nice. When you're here, you're not on the internet. I will choose what I call to be a flame. That's not a flame. It is because I say it is. And I would not 
and also I did everything publicly. I never deleted posts and I never banned anybody. I told them what I thought right then and there. Mm-hmm. Wow. This was, this was a whole different environment. And, the, and somebody, now there is a fellow who just wrote a book about the Forge as a community, but I had a really hard time getting it across to him, this aspect of it, which he actually did study. And he was like, what were you doing there? That's amazing. What was this? And I just couldn't get it across, which was that basically it was setting standards for what we talk about and how we talk about it that still left it open for people to surprise themselves and us and anyone else. Right. And there was no status, right? There wasn't like, you know, advanced member or anything like that. <laughs> but of course, status games started pulling, coming in. Of course they did. And there were two things that I really hated in that regard. One was that the software said how many comments and posts you had. And I didn't even know it was there. I'm such a doofus. I didn't even know it was there. I mean, I was using the Forge for like four. We, we had the Forge going for four years before I realized somebody referred to, you know, well, that guy has so many posts and I didn't feel good about challenging him. I'm like, wait, what? How do you know? That Interesting. Number? Oh, my God. There's a number there. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a complete doofus about all these things that other people like gravitate to. Right. Gym, well, I was just about to say, it's games, amazing right? how we do gravitate to yeah. that. Right. As we try to differentiate and yeah. find ways to, to, to segment things. That's right. fascinating. And so but the forge was built to, to minimize that as much as possible. Right. But the number thing got past me. And then another thing which was very difficult was that by the time a few years had passed, we now had people, instead of pulling together people who had games and proto games out there, which was good, but then once the discussions got going, and as I continued to come up with things that I wanted to do, all these other people are starting to make their own, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with this at all. But you can see that it is intrinsic of who's a publisher, who's a designer, and who isn't. And I tried to whack-a-mole on that as hard as I could. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. There were two things that were going on in that first phase, 2000 through 2004-ish. One of them was the gathering, people hearing about it. Um, the other was the Forge booth, which began as the first Sorcerer booth in 2001 with the – I, I – just out of sheer amused jealousy at some friends of mine who had put out a role-playing game with an actual book and had not <laughs> lost their shirts. And I was like, how did you do that? And they, and I said, well, I'll put out 500 copies. I'll just be, I, I want to just say I did it. Right. So I did. And I was hoping that I would never publish another physical book again. Yeah, that didn't work out quite well. <laughs> but it was really, I should have stuck with that, believe me, but I didn't. So um, part of it was that that, that booth then became a, um, a, a gathering booth itself at Gen Con, where I would have people get exhibitor badges and then their game would be at the booth with them. And so you see that had happened by accident at the first Sorcerer booth. And that's There's this picture of like 25, 30 different people you know, all like excited about what was going on. And a lot of them had their own little games that I had encouraged yeah. them to bring. Yeah. So it was a mini convention there. Right. We had this mini right. convention and it boomed. And so we did this um, and I said, well, let's just keep doing this. Let's do it this way. And I did that for a number of, quite a number of years 
um, talked. And now Gen Con went through all these changes. It shifted to Indianapolis, changed ownership, things like that. And I always worked with the management because I knew we were bending rules. But it turns out that I I win the Diana Jones Award and people are paying attention to the Forge and the, the Gen Con was really happy to have like, you know, the Forge entity inside it. And so that was a way for people to get to Gen Con and to show off their game or their game and design in the communal sense with people who liked the facts that they were doing it. Um, and so organizing that, and I lost money every damn time. The exhibitor badges kept <laughs> sure. getting more expenses, expensive, and I didn't raise the, 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 the compensation. Or, you know, the, the rules for this, the rules for that were changed, and, you know, I end up losing my shirt on it. So I made absolutely nothing out of any of that. But I did that for a long time. So again, people, that, that has really gotten rolling by 2004. The Forge booth is like, you know, a go-to now for a lot of people. Or people are being directed there. So that's happening. The Forge itself is, you know, Clinton and I like go through conference after conference every six months, say, how is this working? You know, how is it going wrong? You know, stuff right. like that. And um, all this is occurring. And then I am putting out the Sorcerer supplements. I had planned on Sorcerer and Sword. Um my reading of related literature led me to do the Sorcerer's Soul, which was also, I realized another angle on what I was doing. It really focused on the humanity mechanic. And I was like, okay, I need to get that there. And I figured I was done. Then I got this horrible idea that I needed to discuss sex, gender, and interactions of real people at the role-playing table in regard to sex and gender. Interesting. And so I had to put out sex and sorcery. Right. And so that's where a whole bunch of things that sort of a lot of highly gendered games appeared after that. A lot of yeah. things where nobody and I had done part of that was writing Troll Babe. But after that, the idea of, OK, there must be a samurai character. He must be a man and he must be played by a woman like the game Kagamatsu, which it was unheard of before that. Right. All that stuff started to occur after sex and sorcery. I put out my little funny game called Elves. Troll Babe was a big one for me. It was the first game I did, published in 2003, first, the first time. The That was the moment when I realized that I was badly, I was, I really had the disorder. I was, I had the severe <laughs> form. I was not, I had not cleansed myself with all the games that I had felt like doing of which Elf the purge the hadn't happened. The purge had hadn't <laughs> happened. Instead, I had opened the door to the dark dimension and the vile beings had were now suffusing <laughs> my psyche. And so I was doomed. I was just yeah. going to have to write role-playing games from now on. Yeah. And um and it got worse. I mean it got worse. I I recovered my personal politics due to events in the world at that time. I had kind of dampened them down after deciding that my side had lost for good. Yeah. The eighties. And, um, then decided that I, as a professor now I so, oh, the PhD's done by now, you know, I've been, I got a professor job straight out of graduate school, you know, no, no postdoc for me. I took one look at the postdoc and was like, you gotta be out of your fucking mind. I'm good. I'm going to be a prof. So I'm a, I'm a biology professor, you know, evolutionary uh -huh. biology, PhD in zoology, 
multiple publications, the whole thing, done the whole, I'm doing the whole deal. And now I'm in this position where I'm like, I cannot be in this societal position without taking a political stance on things. It needs to be done. It's part of the job as far as I'm concerned. So then, of course, I start checking up on things and I who what I start writing these these, these works like Shpiona and Shahida. So I'm doing these things which are basically these enormous discourses on, you know, historical politics that are relevant to today. And then I put little games in them. So, but the point is, is that is the, the journey of what the forge was. It was a form. It was boring. It was visibly, physically boring. It had seven or eight, it had four or five sections. And then there were publisher forms too. And then in each one, you could, if say there was one, I mean, we changed up the, the categories, you know, over mm -hmm. and over as the time went by, as we decided what we were going to do. But there was a number of things that uh, are relevant. One was that um, you were not to treat newcomers as second-class citizens. They were always to be the first priority. Interesting. It was more That's important smart. to talk to newcomers than it was to talk to each other. That was what I wanted. Whether it worked, who knows. After I realized that things had gotten out of hand in 2006 and seven both with the status games and with the forge booth with the same people coming back over and over again. And that means new people, you know, weren't able to come. Um, I, I, I basically said, okay, the way the forge booth is going to work from now on. So this is 2007. Um, you can't come back. You can come for two years and then you That's can't cool. come back. So, and it's going to be, you know, a hundred dollar buy-in for the first year and $200 buy-in for the second. And that's how it's going to be. Um, a indie press revolution had begun at that point, and we shared with a, and he was a Brennan Taylor, um, and he and I got sort of a, a bigger booth thing set up, but that turned into kind of a store situation, and that overshadowed what we were doing, and that lasted for a couple of years. And then I finally said, no, we're busting back when I we... Mean, I do much better with a crappy sign on a street corner. That <laughs> yeah. is my natural environment. Yeah. I am the guy on the street corner and I've got my crappy little sign. And I just, everybody, I made, a, I lost a lot of friends with all these moves because I'm I refused sure. to brand the forge. I refused yeah. to let the forge be a label that you could put on a book. I refused to um, lay claim to the publishing that had benefited from our work, like with some sort of royalty or contractual deal or anything like that. And I had people who were super savvy on all this stuff who really wanted to do this. And they were talking to bigger companies and media groups, all their connections that they were like loaded for bear to jump us up into this huge status in pop culture. And I, ref I just, I wouldn't say I sat there with my principles and stroked my chin and refused. Sure. I was just fucking stupid. I don't get it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I wouldn't respond to certain overtures or I would make a decision about how I want to do it. That was just against what, what would help their goals. And so you end up, there's a huge like teardown at that time. Um, so uh, that's what the forge was. It was a forum for, we had, we coined the term, I coined the term, actual play that was one of the names the, the name of that. the very first forum 
uh, sets. There was indie design, there was actual play, and there was publishing. And <laughs> then we had one that we first we called GNS discussion, and then we called it, you know, RPG theory or whatever. I mean, it was places to talk about yep. this stuff. And um, and those were it. Uh, later, we 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 shifted up a little. There was one called First Thoughts for any like the to to just chit chat about the like, game ideas that you were thinking over. So this, but that was the basic idea. Actual play was one of them. And the idea was, is that just talk about what happened in the game. Just talk about it. Talk about the people, right? Talk about the people. Talk about what you did. Talk right. about how it went. And I even started insisting that I don't even want you talking about theory until you do that. I don't want to talk about anything to do with your abstractions, your spinoffs of these ideas that I've had. Um, I had essays. I had developed my essays until that time. Unfortunately, people were starting to treat them like the Talmud and <laughs> yeah. taking them somewhere else on the internet and, you know, misquoting shit or making shit up and whatever. And they were very, and again, just like the old threefold, it was very easy to take my notions of what creative drive you were bringing and what socially and creatively you were hoping to experience out of it. It was very easy to mistake that for some sort of preference for certain kinds of mechanics. Right, right. Nobody's ever gotten past that. I mean, only people who've interacted directly with me and the community that I'm working with ever goes, oh, so you're not saying that if I'm into stories that I don't have to, oh, oh, but no one ever gets there on their own. So it's, it's always been frustrating to me that I just can't seem to get that across. That's why talking about this as a medium and instrumentation right. is better. Then once we get that down and realize that content can be whatever and instrumentation can, instrumentation can be whatever, it's relevant, it matters. Then you say, and socially, why are we doing this instead of watching porn? Right, right. <laughs> what are you getting out of this in terms of this creative thing? Yep. And I have come to the conclusion that what I used to call or what people originally called and what I continued to call simulationism was simply people who were struggling with the medium itself. Because you see, oh, if, you're so? That's interesting. if you're struggling with the medium itself and you run into the Merc all the time and you're dealing perhaps and you're not even aware of different priorities of why people are even there, the right. whole thing is going to seem horribly fragile to you. The whole thing is going to seem terribly fraught. And you have to stake out your claim and you have to pick the right game and you have to, you know, maybe you have to write your own game to be the right game, goddammit, at last. And yeah. no more arguments. I'm so sick of them. You no, know, this is the anti-argument crowd. We can't have arguments at the table. And so you you basically, if you're in this state, it means you don't have the medium down. You and the people with you just have never hit the point where the medium was a reliable experience. So to you... That has to be the priority. It has to be the priority of design. It has to be the priority of the experience. And it's to the point where then if I say, well, then what do we do with the medium? They're like, no, it's for its own sake. God damn it. <laughs> right? You're like, oh, because without going into it in more detail, I tried to give that point of view as much credence as I could as an aesthetic device of its own. And my experiences with people who, who advocate for it, I have come to realize that that's the, the issue. They are That's struggling cool. medium. Once the medium gets rolling, then what I was calling creative agenda, those are other things. Yeah. 
So, um, so my, my, I don't know, I should tell you why I called it the big model. Please. After I abandoned the old terminology and started calling like what, what they called gamist play, they did very dismissively. We're not going to talk about the gamists. They're troglodytes. <laughs> but I was like, I like competitive play. What the hell? Right. So anyway, um, I, I called it step on up, you know, that that was your aesthetic step on up, buddy. Let's go. Right. Let's, let's play this thing. Either we're going to beat the, beat the obstacle that it poses together, or we're going to compete, whatever it is, but we're doing that. That's our jam. Right. So I called that step on up. Um, the aesthetic that I called, uh, that they, that I was calling narrativism, which means regardless of instrumentation, you are into what the characters do as a decision-making experiential process by which you end up with plot, like, yep. like, a you know, like the wake of your boat. You're like, holy shit, look, a plot. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, but, but to say that it's utterly emergent in, in a completely unconsidered way is bullshit. You considered everything very deeply. And so that's what I was calling that narrative. You try explaining that sometime. I don't don't want to. (laughs) I'll tell you one thing. You ever try? No. Don't, no, no. If you do. Oh. Don't use the word story. I could see that. Right. So anyway, um, but I started just calling that story now, meaning that it wasn't made up beforehand and it wasn't cobbled together retrospectively, but we were doing things that did story making. So, um, so that's what I called it, but I put those together as priorities in the big model, which then I talked about the medium, right? So then you do things in the medium and the medium has time and things happen, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, so that's the thing. The big thing, however, the reason it's called the big model is that the overall encompassing thing is the social group. These people playing the game at this time, this was to get away from the idea that you have social stuff over here. And then you have game and rules and role-playing and stuff over there. And I said, horseshit, anything you do by rolling dice is encompassed in that social group among you and all of the squishy and, un, you know, un, unmentionable nuances of how people deal with one another. And that was a big deal. That's why I called it big. The biggest yeah. thing yeah. is the people and then everything we do, what we imagine together and then how we work with it and things happen in it is inside that. So that was the essence of the thought that was developed through many bloody discussions at the forge <laughs> over that. If you go back to the source of our mailing list, a 10 year period, does that help a little bit? It does. And one of the things that, you know, I was picking up as I was learning about all of this, Ron, was um, the contentious discussions in a positive way. Like, so it's spoken of in a positive way that like you had you had people that were just fighting, but but fighting for for learning and fighting for advancement. Right. I'm glad to hear people say that still. Yeah, like, and, and I think it's it was that was like wow, this sounds like a really interesting thing to me. So I'm going to ask a terrible question. So get ready for this one. And 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 the answer might be, Craig, I, I don't have an answer for this one. Looking at it, do you do you think there's any highlights? Um, I'm going to try to phrase this. So work with me for just a second. What were you think are some of the highlights or the big things that matured because of the way you set up the forge? That the way the forge functioned by by design and by just process because of who participated in it do you, was there some some things that rose out of this that you think was unique 
to, here's, to here's, what the what it was? I'm going to give you an answer that will tell you a lot about me. Okay. Which is to go economic. Which is to say that by when I started this, when I and the others founded the forge, um, to publish your own game was regarded as trifling. <laughs> trifling. Just yeah. to, I mean, what kind of a publisher are you? Right. And it, there were people who continued to try through the course of the hobby, but the 90s were horrific for this, really bad, particularly in terms of expense. And it was just, it was, it was considered the stupidest, silliest, amateurish thing you could do. Right. And still, people struggled and tried. And there are a couple of notable points. Um, I give a lot of credit in the late 90s and 2000, same time, uh, John Wick publishing his own game, Orc World, which I yep. regard highly. Um, a number of others. Greg Stafford actually had his own publishing company for a while, and that's another good example. Mm -hmm. And there, there, so I was real interested. Most people who did this had one booth at Gen Con for one year and lost their shirts in every possible way and had to mulch their print run so they wouldn't get taxed on it. And that was the end of them. And the story, the number of people who had that experience are legion, legion. And so by the time I was, you know, saying, okay, the Forge has done its job, which was around 2007, I said, we've, we've done our job, which was, and I announced at that time, Forge is going to close. Now, Clinton and I had always talked about it as a finite endeavor. And, but that, I think that was like the first time I was like, yo, so when Forge closes and everybody's like, oh, what? And I was like, <laughs> what? Did we but, not say that out loud before? Yeah, exactly. Didn't I say that? And so, <laughs> but anyway, so two, that's around the time because at that time, you didn't have to be at the Forge booth to hold your head up as an independent publisher anymore. Right. And you didn't have to publish, publish in terms of being a commercial entity in the hobby anymore. Yep. And there were now the beginnings of social media and there were, um, communities and platforms and whatever. And I had told everybody at the forge. In fact, there's an infamous quote of mine. It was like, I said, said nicely, I wrote, said nicely, go away. You know, it is time to grow up. This is a learning place. You hang around here. You're going to be just like those sad grad students who stick around in the coffee shops who never finish their degrees, you know, and, and they're just like sitting there like growths in the academic community. That's what you're going to be like. Go right. away. Right. So um, anyway, the that was kind of my my one takeaway was to, to answer your question was now can somebody say should some spunky person out there recapitulate prior discussions and say, oh, that would have happened anyway. I mean, the Internet did that. You didn't do that. Well, all I have to say to that is that it hit hard. It hit hard. There was nobody in role-playing publishing who didn't know about this. Tons right. of people squelched up wanting to be involved. And I said, you're not an independent publisher. You publish other people's work. Go away. Yep. And so it was... If you look at the people who participated there and see what a lot of them have gone on to do, I think you'll see 
the impact. So, well, it speaks for itself. <laughs> well, I don't know if it does or not. I mean, I get a lot of I, I get perhaps different feedback than you've been getting. That, that's um, possible. A lot of my feedback is is um, acrimonious. Yeah. Um, but so the what drives that out of curiosity, uh, Ron? That's surprising to me. It's a whole nother thing. Okay. But let <laughs> me enough. let me <laughs> tell you the the answer that may have been may have been more on your mind. I I don't know, which is what ideas, what ideas. Now, I will say that there was two remarkable instances. Um, and actually, it does tie into what you just asked. One was that a group of people decided they didn't like being at the forge because it wasn't cash and cool enough. And the founder of the new website said, I want the cool guys at the forge in the relaxed atmosphere of RPGNet. Okay. And went and made a forum with its own rules called Story Games. Now, Story Games was created, therefore, as a direct defiance, a direct fuck you to the a response. Yep. yep. And from people who were involved. And a number of the people, uh, now the founder, to his credit, realized that he didn't like what had become of it and stepped away from it quite soon. Um, I regard Story Games as something of a pest hole despite a lot of honest effort on certain individuals' parts. But it created, first of all, the name was a good name to start. It was chosen to mean nothing. Okay. It was chosen to mean literally nothing. It said, listen, all we know is that these things make fiction somehow. Let's just call them that. I mean, fiction-making games sounds like bullshit. We'll call them story games, right? And it'll mean nothing. That's the whole point. It'll mean nothing. You can pump into it, whatever you want. It wasn't and a directive. I, right. Well, that was no. And, and that was a very good name in that sense. Instantly became an identity marker for making games in a specific way. There were peop, creators there who did games in a very specific way. And the status games that I had kept whack a mole at the forge just boomed there. And all of a sudden you had this hierarchy of the right proper kind of game to make, to call it a story game. And that's how story games, the term, was born. Interesting. Not at the Forge. In fact, I would say that I was appalled. So that doesn't necessarily mean that every game that is called a story game by its creator is a bad game. But the percent of them that are good is nothing to write home about. <laughs> sure. So that's one thing. Simultaneously. There was, you're probably familiar with Dragon's Foot Forum, and you're probably familiar with the fact that the open gaming license was made available by Wizards of the Coast in 1999. Um, Wizards of the Coast was already in the middle of its Hasbro purchase in kind of this stepwise fashion. So, you know, even though no one else knew that was coming, they did. But anyway, so they do the OGL, because so basically the Atkinson team is already planning the flip. You know, they got it from, they got TSR from the Williams crew, and then they were going to flip, you know, then and they got Pokemon, and they got Gen Con, right? And they were going to flip that to Hasbro, and Peter wanted to keep Gen Con, and he did. So anyway, the, the that was all in process right then. So what happens specifically is that a number of people encounter the forge and learn about self-publishing and there's this ogl 
which means, and for the longest time, people kept saying, oh, but you guys wouldn't do D20 games. We're like, why not? So all these people started showing up at the Forge booth with D20 stuff, which is fine. Again, I didn't care what was in the things, except insofar as we wanted to talk about them actually doing what they do and not being fake design. (laughs) But you should know that the Forge booth did not vet the games. And a lot of people showed up and got an exhibitor badge at the Forge booth, you know, through arrangement with me beforehand, whose games I did not know, and they weren't active at the Forge. So I did not vet them. That's very important. So um, with that in mind, a lot of people were starting to read, and, and I know this from the people in question, they read Sorcerer and Sword and said, holy crap, you can have literary integrity when you do a role-playing game. <laughs> and they went and dug into their fave fantasy and said, I want to do that. I want to play here. All right. And so that Sorcerer and Sword was like the, the, the boom for that, for a lot of people. So... A lot of people at Dragon's Foot are suddenly discovering that their D&D isn't your D&D, which was kind of a revelation back around 2000. Interesting. And so, um, I mean, people were, you know, I, I just, I always give this example of people saying, yeah, I played original D&D, Redbox. You're kind of like, that was 1985. <laughs> you know, what do you mean original d What are you talking about? Well, it said basic on the cover and you're like, oh my yeah. God. Right. It, was already, so, it was already 12 years old. I know. <laughs> it had been through like two different owners and, you know, it's, so anyway, um, I am saying that at the Forge, a lot of people who were very interested in the scholarship of D&D and who were learning about self-publishing and who were learning that they could do their own fantasy bounced from there to become major players in the very early stuff that later would be called OSR. So the OSR terminology was brought in around 2006 and its first rumbles really kind of took hold around 2008. And yet, for whatever reason, um, okay, so at that point, up until around 2009 or so, People involved with that stuff were very friendly toward their history with the Forge. Social media kicked in in 2009. And staking out social media as an internet of its own, recapitulating the horrors of the early internet in full <laughs> and institutionalizing and monetizing them, um, has had turned basically into you know a, a hellscape. Um, it's weird. What I call... It, <laughs> I finally had somebody explain like the dark web to me. What was the dark web? And they explained it to me. And I was like, isn't that the internet? (laughs) Because, you know, I wasn't embedded in all these different platforms and different notifications and stuff like that. You know, I didn't have my phone synced in and all this stuff. And so I didn't have an Instagram that I pumped stuff out and tweet, right? That whole thing where, which is to people, you know, the internet, to me, that's, that's a hellscape. I mean, I, I call what they call the dark web. I'm like, okay, this is safe. <laughs> this is a safe place. This place is good. You know? I can trust these people. So, well, if, if you know, if you connect with people and set things up, you can trust people, right? It's it's like I'd rather deal with street people, and some of them are junkies, and some of them are murderers, right. 
But at least, you know, you're going to figure that out pretty fast. I'd rather be in there than in some corporate environment, right, with everybody in their little cubicles. So anyway, um, with that going on, that's where you're going to get weird animosities toward the Forge. The story games people, for lack of a better word, have different views. And some people I'm still very, I mean, it's not even a matter of being friendly with people, right? This is not about friendship and loyalty. I never claim, I never drew on anybody for loyalty. And I don't give a shit about that. And so, and my whole point about the forge was that you go away, you get better and you go away. I don't want to keep people. Didn't want to grow the community, right? That was this, this is crazy talk to a lot of people. It's very unique, Ron. I'm fascinated well, by it. Well, the, the, the problem was it was incomprehensible to anybody. Right? So <laughs> yeah. it was very difficult to, to talk about this. as, And, and so, um, so anyway, I've been very negative about story games, but then a lot of people, I'm going to say, were very, very authentic as individuals and with their own work. So don't get me wrong. But there's that it became clear, however, that to distance yourself from the forge verbally became sort of a piece of that culture. Whatever happened in the OSR to suddenly create a, a story games hating and hating Ron Edwards as the father of story games of all things. I mean, some narrative got going with doofuses and some of them were very loud and some of them um, were expert, absolutely expert at their new zones of sphere and training, training people to be looking at things a certain way. Um, and so actually I find the OSR kind of fascinating. First of all, in terms of publishing and the games that they make, you see, there isn't an OSR. That's the other thing. I say they, there isn't one. Nobody knows what it is. It's a, it's a label you can stick on a book. That's all it is. So, and there's, and what is it? It's the forge. People are making all sorts of cool games their way. Fantastic. If they want to fetishize a particular game that they're bouncing off of, go ahead. I don't care. I mean, and also all these so-called retro clones aren't anyway. You go back and you read the differences and the way they explain things. Like, okay, it's a different game. So, but they just don't like to think of it that way. With a lot of the people in who self-identify as the OSR, I regard them a lot like rock musicians. <laughs> Most of them do great things, but for God's sake, don't listen to them talk. Right, right. right. Or if you do, <laughs> if you do, just get ready to, you know, kick back. I mean, you ever read an interview with Robert Plant? Yes. Oh, <laughs> what a moron. Yeah, it's <laughs> insufferable. Yeah, uh, and you, Paige is the can, same way. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least Paige is smart, though. I mean, Paige is one of the guys, if he talks about music, I will listen, actually. Plant's a bonehead. And That's there's funny. a whole bunch of guys like him, gals like him out there. So the, the OSR culture and community kind of thrives on sort of the know-nothing bleating doesn't mean that great games and great play aren't happening. So, but neither of those references the Forge as a good thing, and it has become obscure. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much the way it's happened, to answer yeah. your question of culturally what's occurred. Well, I mean, it's it's been such an it's it's so fascinating because it, it, this whole endeavor that I'm going through with this podcast and this Insider Insight series is 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 kind of like an archaeological 
historical view oh, geez, for myself. In this case, oh, oh, so much, so and, much, and, yeah. and it's it's so fascinating because and, and and I'm learning different pockets, you know, and learning about different things, and and you know. Now I've got now I need to start learning more about the OSR because I, I keep hearing the term and, oh, there's, and I, there's I great stuff at work. There's yeah, some great it, fun games at work. No question. There's games that I'm that I've come across that people are saying, well, that's OSR. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, I, all I know is I like the game. Like, I think right. this is interesting. And and, you know, starting to hear that form. But, you know, at the same time, as I was exploring other things, I kept hearing the forge, you know, and having no idea. That there there was any type of acknowledgement, let alone gap that that happens between them. So that's fascinating. So, guys, we're going to take another quick break. And one of the things that I've really been looking forward to is to talk about what Ron's doing now and the concept that he has um, in play, which is we call adept play. Uh, So let's take a quick break and let's talk about what Ron is doing today. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to Patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming, even if there is a link in the show's description. And there is. We don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode, knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So, Ron, Ron, you know, during all of this happening, you know, we've talked about it and you've alluded to it, you know, you, you have a full career, right? You have a full-time job (laughs) and and, uh, right. Right. Uh But, but, but at some point role-playing became what, what you wanted to do or were you, were you tired of academics? So I'd be curious to know when the jump here happens, when you, when you, when you leave career and, and start taking role-playing as you know, what you do. Um, let's first of all say that I have always been a multi-track person um, and that uh, it, I can look at early examples, which are interesting, but in later in the 90s, um, I knew that role playing was something that I would be doing constantly. And starting in the early 90s, um, I knew that martial arts study would be doing something that I would be doing constantly. And I was dedicated to my academic career. I liked it. I had a lot of independence and I rapidly got activity status and um, uh, uh, interactions, fruitful, you know, personal fruitful interactions, both with teaching and with research. 
So I was one of the happier academics I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but to me, it made perfectly good sense for one evening to be spent playing, um, you know, a, a, a little known role playing game called the whispering vault. And then the next night, you know, be fighting a guy who's a, you know, at the air force base, right. Who works out with us. Um, and then the night after that, getting my lectures together for, you know, why parasitism should be managed through transmission rather than virulence, right. why we should bring the transmission down. You'll notice the relevance at the moment, uh, why we should be bringing transmission down through a wide variety of means rather than just leaping to something that shuts off the virulence. There are many reasons not to do that as plan A. So anyway, um, but that's the thing. I mean, that was my life going through, you know, through those things and stuff like them all at once. And so it was very rich social life. Very, very dynamic, um, very stimulating. And, I'm and I would imagine a lot of non-concentric circles too, Ron, Absolutely. right? You had, you had this community that you yep. interacted with and were a part of, and then a, a separate community that you, yes. that, that's got to be valuable. Well, yes, but I also found that often through my participation that people would jump. People would, would find, I was a door. I was, as a person, I am a door. People get interested in that other thing. Um, and so that happened a lot. Well, as it turns out, um, Okay, with that context, if that's the kind of person that I am. Um, academia as a professor began in 1998, after I got my PhD in 97. And, um, and I was first at a college in Georgia. And then I went to the place that I really wanted to go, which was DePaul University in Chicago. So I was returning to where I had got my undergrad degree. Not the same institution, but to the city. Um, and so... Um, in that context, I started a role-playing club. So you can see that, you know, I'm still, you know, multi-tracking this whole time. And the Forge is going full blast. I mean, I started at DePaul in 1999. So, I mean, most of everything that I've talked to you about, I was a prof that whole time. So we are talking like hardcore teaching loads. We're talking about advising. We're talking about committee work, you know, all that shit, all of it. Um, so basically just doing them all full blast all the time. Um, having three kids in two years in 2007 through early 2009 obviously puts, you know, a change into that. Um, but it didn't stop me from doing any of them. So what I'm driving at is that my coming down for a landing in academia um, was its own story. And it had a lot to do with the changes at that university in the very things that had attracted me to it. Um, as we like to say, uh, the new administration at DePaul in 2007 wanted to become Northwestern University in the worst way. And that's exactly how they went about it was in the worst way. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so it was it was particularly bad. The impact on our programs, the impact on the undergraduates, the demographics of the incoming undergraduates, all the black men in my classes disappeared. Poof, just gone. 
like within two years. God, that's crazy. Right? And just as an example. And yeah. um, I, as I said, got involved in some pretty heavy politics. I became the advisor for the faculty advisor for Students for Justice in Palestine, which, as you can imagine, was its own world. I'm sure. And so, therefore, um, I was very busy in that. But my point was, is that I was finding that the, the school, bit by bit by bit, was becoming a place where I could not honestly say to myself that we were serving the students who came to us. And it particularly kicked in after the financial crash. And at that point, I was saying, you guys have changed it up so that now the students are having to go into debt here, just like at all the other schools. They didn't used to have to do that. And now, after this crash, you're going to be trying to maintain the old model of hardcore student debt, extractive debt that they can't declare bankruptcy on or anything, and you're going to support this? And that's when I, I had always prided myself on being able to advise our students as they got ready to leave well in terms of not just sort of being shoved out the door and looking around, but having a much better, a good professional basis for making choices about what they wanted to do. And I could no longer do that. There was, I, I asked around all the places and I was like, okay, do, and they said, we can't take undergraduates anymore. We can't take the new graduates. We just can't do it. And I realized that I could not look myself in the eye and say, what you do is a good thing to do. I was not well paid. You may not know this, but university professors, when they talk about like their pay scale and stuff, they're talking about 10 to 20% of the professors. Um, this is crude and unwelcome to say. I know that people aren't supposed to talk about this, but after 25 years in academia and having been regarded as if not the finest, one of the few finest teachers in the entire institution and considered to, you know, begged, begged to stay when I said that I wanted to leave, begged to stay, um, that I made $50,000 a year. That's crazy. Now, that's actually, and, that, and, and I was no adjunct. I was a professor. Okay. So it's, it's a big deal. I mean, people, most, most, and, and I was considered, oh shit, I'm here. <laughs> wanted to know if I was still in the session. I just got a notification that almost booted me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, the point was that I was not in a situation with three tiny children to take this seriously as a job. You can do good work, work that you respect and are proud of. And you can get respect for it by others and the people you work with around you and be treated decently by them. And you can be well paid. I'm of the opinion that most people will accept two of those. Right. <laughs> and I had accepted the first two for crap pay. And what I was beginning to find was that these were faltering. Yeah, the, 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 the good two work pillars was, that you did. was collapsing and the respect I was getting for it, now that it wasn't administratively supported, I was starting to cause trouble almost daily. 
you know, I'd just go into the dean's office or the student's, you know, academic affairs office or whatever and say, what the hell do you think you're doing? Give that student credit. She was in my class every single day. She did all the work. Well, she didn't get her favors. I don't care. Right. And so pretty soon you were starting, I was starting to be a problem for my department head. Right. So with this sort of thing going on, I said, I have to stop. I landed in 2013, I landed a book contract with Oxford University Press for my dream book. I had proposed it to them two years earlier and, uh, and I got the contract. And so I got the contract and I informed my department head that I am leaving next year. And I said, I shall finish this book. I shall have it published by Oxford University Press. I will call it a win. I was in, I was a professor for twice as long more than twice as long as I was a graduate student. Win. <laughs> Fucking win. Okay? Win. Book published. Win. So that's what I did. And that book was published in a, in a due time. Um, it's called The Edge of Evolution um, and concerns uh, humanity, evolutionary theory, and the island of Dr. Moreau. So, Interesting. Yeah. So still available from Oxford University Press. I think... Maybe somebody who's not one of my friends has bought it. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, but but I did that. So that's the story of finishing out in academia. And as far as moving to Sweden was concerned, it's something that we had talked, my wife and I had talked about for years and years. Our kids were born in 2007 and 2009, and we pretty much knew that we would have to go. And the 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 alignment like i was really super ready and she wasn't quite ready then she'd be super ready and something was going really well for me and you know so you know we were kind of doing that for a while and then in you know around 2015 16 you know we we looked at each other and we were like bell pull, you know, pull the cord. yeah <laughs> so um so that anyway that's that's how that worked out now as far as continuing to work here in sweden is concerned i just didn't want to be a prof anymore and I said, what do I do that I'm any good at at all? And let's start a business. Let's call it Adept Play. So that's my business here in Sweden. And what is that business, Ron? It is um, nothing more than a website and the associated necessary social media, a Discord channel, for example. Um, but the idea is to showcase what it is to play by sharing it with one another that you don't, it's not about having to record one sessions, although if you do bonus, but to talk, it's, it's the old actual play form at the forge. Come share what you did, share who you are. You know, I'm not talking about breaking anonymity. You can call yourself whatever you want, but the point is, is that, you know, share who you are and how this is, what happens, how the game works for you. And we will have plenty to discuss. And, that's basically what a person can do there. Um, there is a section for consulting. I had started a few years earlier consulting for game design. Found that I really liked doing it and that I felt I was being reasonably effective. So now you can get consulting from me, as usual, really, really, really cheap because I have no head for business at all. <laughs> You're and not so, good at this, Ron. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And, uh, but the, the idea being that, you know, I'd really rather have people benefit if that makes any sense. I mean, I hope it's, and if they don't benefit, I don't want them to lose their shirts. So 
I mean, which only makes sense, except that no one ever, like, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Read a self-help book, right? You're not supposed to do that. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I'm doing that. And then I also um, am teaching classes uh, at the moment in an Italian academy called Giano Academy. I'm teaching a couple classes on game design. A new one, a new round starts up in just two and a half weeks. So, um, which I recommend anybody can go. It's just like an online thing. You can go. Oh, okay. Okay. And it's taught in English. So, uh, yeah, Giano Academy. I'll send you the link. Yeah, please. We'll put it in the show notes. I was really afraid of teaching these classes. I thought it was going to be like old man shouts at clouds while captive students, you know, (laughs) sit there glumly, you know. And so I was really worried. I was really worried about like promoting these and getting into them. But now that we've been through a couple of rounds of the introduction to design course and actually started to do some of the secondary courses that I've made, I'm like, oh my god, okay, okay, it doesn't suck. It doesn't suck. That's funny. They're, they're, they're getting somewhere. You know, this is great. They're learning. Well, it's it, it's so. a new field. Um, right. uh, I, I mean, this came up uh, when I talked to uh, a Luke Crane, uh, and Luke Luke has been working through that as well um, and teaching. Here is an important thing for me about it. I tell the students that I have no fairy dust, that there is no (laughs) textbook of role-playing game design, and that I am not in any way, shape, or form going to discuss writing your game and publishing your game. We are talking about design, period. And a lot of what we do and what you write down will never show up in the book. And actually, I encourage you, once you really feel like your design is mature or maturing, then start all over. (laughs) <laughs> and write the game yeah don't yeah. write the game now or you know you can scribble but it's shit don't do it right it's not important so that's a big deal is that we work with design as such with no plans that's your problem later down the road future you has that problem so that's a big deal for what i teach about design um and it's all through play playing that's how cool. to play so that your design gets better so it's it that that's a big deal let me think of other things that happen at Adept Play, which have been kind of important to me. First of all, I've been promoting internationalism from the start. I want this to be a multilingual place, and I want games that are played in very different places around the earth to be showcased there. Um, it doesn't also, it's not proprietary. I mean, if you have your own YouTube channel or whatever, your own place where you do this, shit, put up a post here too. It's just boosting your signal. So it's not intended. I mean, there's no monetary fee to sign up. Aside from consulting um, and getting paid for teaching or stuff like that and the sales of my PDFs, um, then the only other way I get paid is by people being on a Patreon, which is obviously voluntary. And there's no play. There's no paywall for anything there. So as you can see, it's my usual anarchic, you know, thickness that that is at work here but i'm yeah but it sounds like you're you you sound like you're at peace with that though ron i mean we joke you joke about it but it sounds like that's where you're you're at your happiest i am i am happy doing that and i am blunt about it because nobody will believe it and so i have to be very blunt with people about what i will and won't do or what i want them to participate with um so otherwise they say, yeah, 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 but we can do this, da, 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 right? <laughs> so, um, so that's a big piece of it. But anyway, so Adept Play, the idea is there's a lot of things calling themselves actual play out there. 
with no attribution. Thank you very much. And they, <laughs> I'm guilty. I'm, I'm doing that. <laughs> and they, um, oh no, well, you're doing a great thing. What you're doing is the good thing because okay. what the bad thing is, or let's, okay, that's very judgmental. Let us say the thing that I don't want to do and do not regard as constructive is to have professional entertainers effectively play the parts of fictional role players who themselves are playing a fictionalized account of playing a role-playing game. And it's very entertaining because that's what these people are good at. And even if they're improving, they are skilled improvers at catching the ball and flicking it back to the audience for the making a big laugh out of hearing that thing again, you know, and they're good at that. Improv is an entertainment transitive activity. And so when you have that being the way that a lot of people are encountering this word role playing, um, here is my characteristically crude analogy. You're basically trying to show people sex by having them being entertained by porn. Interesting. The analogy, I think, is exact. So, therefore, I am very much in favor of promoting anybody who is enjoying this activity and showcasing that enjoyment. So that people, in part, in part, one is that people who may be interested can actually see what you do what it is to enjoy this. And there, another interesting piece of this is, well, am I trying to grow the hobby, make the hobby bigger? The answer is no. What I, in my experience, people who self-identify as gamers and role players, only a certain fraction of people are genuinely aesthetically interested in anything that they're doing. A lot of it is just commercial capture. This is the way they spend money to be involved in pop culture. And that's fine. Every, every endeavor has a, perhaps a majority membership in that category. So that's fine, but that's not who I want to play with. So I look for people in role-playing who have um, – and, and do it, does that mean it's all serious? No, no, we're talking <laughs> about the fun, okay? Right. So then I maintain, and I have seen it in practice – constantly is that similarly the larger culture has a minority fraction of people who would like to play and have at this point pricked up their ears at least once and said oh yeah I would, I would like to do that sometime so I'm not even talking about like an untapped and unknown I'm talking about the people who are like yeah I know I heard about that and there's a lot of people like that. And they don't look or act like the subculture of gamer. No, right? it's very They're, true. And, and you'll even see them at gaming tables sometime. They're often like the, the romantic partner of one of the people who's there. And they will say that they're just there just to, you know, be in with, the, in with this crew. It's fun. You know, I'm with them. I'm with her. I'm with him. Whatever. But they're the best at the table. And so what I'm talking about is that, therefore, that subsector within the hobby and that subsector outside of the hobby, I consider the same people. And these are my audience. And 
then there's another interesting batch, which I don't seek, but happens. People who have, in fact, decided that they hate role-playing and hate the hobby. <laughs> okay. And then after a bit of interaction and then they're jumping into a game and we're finding it at its play, there's like a whole subset of the community there who are based like, this was super fun. Yeah. And so that's really what I'm trying to do is to generate my, my live group. There's a, the, the infrastructure for this in Sweden is amazing. I, I won't even go into it. It's amazing. <laughs> um, the, the Corona virus put a huge dent in what I was doing with the live meetings that I was doing at least once a week. Um, but we've continued by screen, but that makes it a lot harder to see because we had a steady rotation in of new people. And that makes that a lot harder. It's we're still doing that, but it's slow. So the idea is to have a community here and to also be connecting with different people. So if anyone listening, you know, the it's if you like what we're doing and talking about at Adept's Play, because a lot of chit chat at the it's you know what it is? It's a stealth form. A post is a post. You like say, oh, we you know we played Star Trek and we played this game, right? This game. And then you make a post, and then people can comment, and then there's one level of nesting. So then under a comment, there can be a string of replies. So it looks like a blog, but it's it's actually a forum. Don't shh. <laughs> um, and but the, it, it's it's in that fashion. It's very informal, and it's so slow, so slow. There's no likes, no social media interaction whatsoever, no messaging to one another. There's no there's nothing like that, and it's so slow. I mean, there are people who have tried it and they don't like it. They want 50 comments, you know, in the first hour. They're used to that. They get that on their YouTube channel. They get that at Twitter. Here, wait a couple of days. A comment will appear. Someone else will chat about that. You know, and that's funny. This guy's not answering. We're talking about his game. That's because we took the time to watch. It's because we took the time to think. So it's a, but if, if a person can stand that, that it simply isn't playing that game, then I think the benefit, and also there is also the Discord. You can go and pop off at the Discord channel. <laughs> you can get your immediate gratification you, you can, there. <laughs> you can go there and like hit, you know, the little kitty cat button or the little heart hug button and all that. You can do that there, um, and, and that's fine. Um, but it's, you jumped uh, the shark, Ron. I, I I don't know if you're serious anymore now. <laughs> <laughs> well, <That's> great. <laughs> as Discord channels go, I mean, I have sort of you know miffed one or another person. I was like, all right, cut this shit. And they're like, wait, what? Like, yeah, I'm moderating you. Can you just, you know, just you're you're bullshitting us now. Stop. And they're like, wait, wait, what? And it's like, yeah, go tweet. So you know, it's it's kind of uh, it, even for a Discord channel, it is just a little bit. It's very again, very simple. Very few channels. There's not 50 channels of subdivisions. So so that is there. Um, there is the Patreon as well. Um, I am crap at patreon because actually i'm do i do better than a lot of people actually i've got you know a, a, a solid and a solid little group there but it's not you know it's not like thousands of people sure but what sure. i'm driving at though is that i'm 
I've been struggling for years to how to do this. I don't do the kind of thing where I can like give you a picture every week, but I'm going to try to have to come up with something where it is. It's really not fair. Patreon, patron people kind of want that. And, and I, and if I want new people, I'm probably going to have to come up with something of that kind. So still work in progress as far as that's concerned. I'm in the same way, Ron. I've got a Patreon and there, there is no added benefit to being yeah. a patron of me. Uh, other yeah. than you get, other than you get an episode without right. ads. That's the yeah. only thing that you get. I, I, um, you, in mine, you'll get like a lot of playtesting chit chat and you'll get for whatever it's worth, you know, my periodic chunk of what I've been reading, which is kind of fun actually. Um, and a, a few other things like I'll, I'll bring up a, a, a juicy topic because I want, I'm, I'm suffering. I want, I want to, I want a chaotic and, and, you know, opinionated benefit from privacy discussion on this stuff where we can be wrong, like really wrong. And I'm okay with being wrong in public, but in this case, I'm pretty sure we're going to be really wrong. And so that's going to be, um, you know, let's hash it out here and then we'll bring it up, you know, at, at the, at, and to the bigger I was, group. I was actually, I call seminar which is where we do, this is, this is going to be linked at seminar, for example, um, where topics are brought up and discussed. Um, the biggest part of those are what's called labs where we have, mm. and, and patrons can be in the labs. So Got you it. can be in the labs and discuss really cool, important things. That's cool. That's so, very, very cool. Um, so um, that's the idea. As we wrap up, Ron, um, one thing I'd be curious about, uh, for you, and, and you may not have an answer to this, um, are there any games out there right now um, that that get you excited? Um, is there is there anything like what does Ron play? Um, uh, well, you, you see, know? this is one of those interesting uh, industry questions. You see, um, and I don't answer industry questions because I don't follow what's out latest and what's the hottest and the new. Well, that, that's not okay. what I'm looking right. about. Oh, okay, that's uh, good. That's good because yeah, that's I, not. I, I, I want to know what Ron plays. Oh no, I mean, problem I, at all. I, because okay, of our so connection with Anthony, games, I know you. I know you recently played recent recently played the Modifius Star Trek. Right. Um, so in a, just this year alone, um, I currently am playing a dialect facilitated by someone else in the in the Swedish group. Um, I am playing Epiphany, a game by Greg Porter that was published in 1994. Um, and I just finished a very extensive game of the latest version of Gamma World using the D&D 4th edition rules. Um, and then before that, we played a game called Chaotic, also coincidentally from 1994, a science fiction game. Um, and um, the it, it kind of, I mean, it goes on. I have a very extensive list. If, if you go to the Adept's Play of the actual play section of Adept's Play and just look at what I've posted or what people mm -hmm. have posted in games that I happen to be in, the list is enormous. And to tell you, and, and frankly, I, you know, I've been playing in the, the, until recently, I played in a very long running game of Empire of the Petal Throne, original publication of 1975. So I play games from every single era of role playing, um, I, and I enjoy them a lot. So you will find game, and other people are doing the same. A lot of people who came to Adept Play saying it's Ron Edwards, we're going to be the new indie hotness, the new innovative this and that, and I'm like, yeah, let's play this game from you know 1982. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we're not going to change anything about it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're going to play in good faith. You know, well, in some, well, and sometimes, I mean, let's. This is important too. Rules as written as a principle, that's not where I'm at. I'm interested in, in, in incorporating what they're offering, but then there are some where you do try it in play and you are like, balls. Okay, that part we're not doing. <laughs> okay, that happens. Okay, so it's not about purism toward the rules. It's more like we're going to take of it as much as we possibly can in good faith. Um, and, but we don't even have to do that. That's not like moral. So, um, the, the, but the idea is, is that, I mean, I'm not, I'm, geez, I'm not even sure where to start. Okay. First of all, I played a shit ton of my version of champions all the way through earliest play test until publication over the course of two years. So you want to talk about champions. Now there's a ton of champions now on there now all by other people than me, which is good. Um, and then the same thing goes for sorcerer. I started off deliberately focusing on sorcerer and then i stepped away from it now a ton of other people are playing that's which cool is great um and then uh let's see last year uh lamentations of the flame princess and um oh my goodness it just goes on i mean i've i've played um, the reason i'm looking is i'm kind of looking over at the at the shelf um games you know obscure and games well known um, we, you know, I, I may, I'm very open to what other people want to play. So a lot of the time, like the Gamma World game and stuff like that, those are games that other people have proposed that I've jumped in on. So it's not, so I am playing tons of games, some because I love them, some because, and this is a big thing for me, a game that I've, that's been sitting on my shelf that's always been third place or fifth place of what to play. And yeah. finally you're like, I can't do this anymore. We are, it's, it's gotta be in first place. I am playing this one game that I really, really loved playing um, is called um, dark earth legends. Also from the early nineties, a basically a failed fantasy game. What I call a fantasy heartbreaker because it was published and designed at the table in great faith with a certain sort of this is what fantasy is from role-playing. And it ran economically face-first into the 90s and died a horrible death. But a lot of them, a lot of them are cringy in their assumptions, but amazing in many aspects of play. That's cool. And I always knew Darker Legends had a little special something <laughs> and that I really wanted to play it. It was all sort of the top of my list, but nobody else chose it when I said, Hey, let's pick five of these. You know, no one ever chose it. So anyway, I finally got to play that, which was great. There's another game that's very similar called legendary lives, which actually I had played a while ago and continued to do on and off as people were interested in it. And it's an extraordinarily fascinating game. One of the things that we found is that a lot of these fantasy heartbreakers so-called, by me in my essays, um, you learn a lot. And although I do speak reasonably highly of, you know, the OSR as a creative, you know, kind of ferment, I will say that I don't learn a whole lot from <laughs> many of them, uh, which is kind of too bad. I mean, I, I kind of wish they would be a little more aggressive in their their aesthetics. It can't all be in the art, all right? And, and in a lot of them, it tends to be. So if, if, the, if the doing, 
if I could actually do what that guy is doing on the cover. I mean, how many role-playing games do you have where the guys doing the, the guy and the gal are like awesome on the cover, then you play a while and you're like, wait a minute. I, I don't get to be that guy, cover. Right? <laughs> right? And so, um, and so the, the, the there's a lot of that going on. Which, but so, but these games, the, a lot of these older games that came to wretched and tragic ends economically, they will blow your mind. That's I cool. Mean, you will learn stuff about. Oh, so this game handles this kind of interaction differently. Um, and it's not made by committee. It's made off of a table. It's made from experience and it shows oh, legendary cool. lives taught more people, more things through a variety of different groups playing it like with and without me. Um, then I think I've learned from a role-playing game ever. It, it really, and it's got all sorts of quirks. It's got, it's got a this terrible statistical problem in its resolution, but we were <laughs> able to figure it out. That's the point. We were able to say, why does that problem happen? And we learned about it. So we then built its variables compared to the universal table in Marvel superheroes that it's derived from and saw the way the color bands were different. Right. And then we said, yes, that's what it's like. That's why that happens in play. So, you know, you, you can really get somewhere. Um, and the positive aspects of it are shocking. It's, it's uh, just to tell you a little bit more about it. It has what to a number of people is very much a red flag. It's got several dozen races and several dozen professions or types, right? And you're like, oh, no, right? And it's got this long list of these things that look like skills. And, you know, to a lot of people, it might be, oh, no. And, uh, you know, heavy, complicated outcomes of rolling. You roll and then you check and then you go over. Right? So... <laughs> But its character creation system is almost entirely random. You will roll upwards of 30 times, table after table after table after table. You will go through this, and you are rolling stuff that is more and more and more and more nuanced then only at specific points do you choose something and not the first thing either. And one of the things you choose after the race and after the characteristics and after the background and the, what their height and weight are and their family skills are and all sorts of things only then do you then look at your attributes and get an idea of what types you're allowed to pick. And types are not in the fiction. Your character's profession is whatever you want it to be. And it may well be the one from your family or it may not, but that's what your character's doing. Your type is the kind of person they are. And it is, they do have names like knight and priest, and thief, and who knows? There's a whole bunch. But that's your, do you see what I mean? That's your story role. That's your what your character is good at. That's the kind of thing, that's how people are going to treat you or think of you. But it's not anything you call yourself. Interesting. So, but you choose that. 
and you'll have a limited number, usually about four or five, based on where your attributes have, have come to. And so then you roll, 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 and you roll all this background stuff. You roll relative to your religion. You got this huge thing about the religion, but then it tells you whether you're fucked up regarding your religion. Are they hunting you or not? And at some point in this, a weird snap together happens, and every new roll actually makes amazing sense. Something cognitive happens along the way. Notice that you've participated once. Right. And after that, the further roles start to seem divinely inspired. The dice Isn't must have known, right? <laughs> and and it's, it's like, oh, of course, right? You know, and you're doing that. And then at the end, you name your character's current goals. Absolutely unconstructed. But you know that this priest guy whose girlfriend was in love with his friend who got struck by lightning and that adventure that went badly. And now they he has to get this artifact, you know, away from the rebel faction of his religion, you know, and he owes this much money to save his family. And it's crazy. But you it's yours and the choices you made in it. Make the whole thing yours. No one's character is going to be like yours, even with the same roles. That's cool. That's cool. And then you tie the bow at the end, it sounds like. And so it's actually, it's shocking. I mean, all of us were kind of like, give me more games with random character creation now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, You see what I mean about learning stuff. I I do. I do. And it's, it, um, I tell you what's funny is uh, how random tables, and this gets, we we could do a whole freaking episode on this but how they've come out came you know were this from there from the very beginning oh yeah wicked went out of fashion from my mm-hmm. understanding very much went out of fashion and i've been it's been interesting to hear how they've come back but i'm learning they didn't come back in the same way they left well, they right no, that they're much they, smarter now and they're right. used differently and they mean different things now and that's been fascinating to me yeah the the terms that we've been that i've been developing because i've sort of said look i learned from all the terminology that we worked through through the forge but that was all heuristic and and it was a small community and the goal was not to create a vocabulary for the ages I never wrote the Book of Forge Theory for a reason. Now I said, okay, now that we've done all that, now how do we talk about it in ordinary language? For which we really don't need that many special terms. But one of those terms that I alluded to a minute ago was bounce. The things that occur that no one person had full control over in terms of introducing. And and if somebody, or all of us, or something in between, are kind of on the back foot. Our choices have to change. One might say, oh, you're just talking about randomization. No, I'm not. There's a lot of random methods that don't have bounce. And there's a lot of non-random things you can do that do. It's just that if a well-constructed dice or other random system is gold for it. So it's... The, the, does that give you an idea of the kind of talking we're doing, right? Oh, we're I, I, I absolutely grounded. love it, Ron. Yeah. yeah, staying real grounded as much as we can. So that's, that's the, great, Ron. Cool. That's great. I appreciate it, my friend. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and um, and uh, spending it with us. Um, so obviously we've got some things to link in there, but let's talk quickly about people who want who want more, Ron. Where do they go? <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, adeptplay.com. 
So that's one word, addictplay.com. And there's the link to the Discord channel if that's your thing, right? You can just go, oh, website, ah, Discord, jump, right? <laughs> go ahead. That's one thing. Um, and other than that, well, I do all put all my stuff on YouTube. So I willy-nilly have a YouTube channel. Um, but I don't really cultivate a community there because I'd rather have it be at its play. But some people do, you know, like to comment there and I will be, I will be friendly there. I will talk with a person there if they want. So you can hit my YouTube channel. Very li- Typically, you're going to see a pattern. Everything I do, there's like two options. It's not, you know, it's not curated through a whole ton of complicated things. Well, so that's the YouTube. And um, then, of course, the Patreon which is also linked at Adapt Play for for those as would care to contribute to this being possible. <laughs> um, but AdaptPlay.com is the place where things are available to check out. My original goal was to have it be very archival, that you could go somewhere and you could say, oh, here they talk about system. Let's click on that. And wham, 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 all these different posts would pop up about where you know, different things. You can go and check these things out. Or you could say, oh, does anyone play D&D around here? Click, bam. Oh, look, all the D&D play, of which there is plenty, I might add, of all the flavors. And so um, if you were to go there and look for something like that, you won't find it because website design ain't easy. And so (laughs) it's kind of a lost art, actually, in some ways. So therefore, I am struggling to have the site, you know, be easy, but really, you'll just have to go to Adam's Play for, or sorry, actual play for all the actual play stuff, seminar for all the chit chat stuff. Of course, a lot of that happens in the comments too of anything. And then consulting, you can actually see a lot of the clients allow me to present the consulting. And that's actually pretty illuminating stuff sometimes. That's, there's some pretty fascinating things. I, I'm very big in consulting about not telling people how, you know, what to do. I want them to help them be in the position that they decide. And so um, you'll see a lot of that in a wide variety of different games. So I would say that's where I'm at. And I, there's no lock on the door. <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that. But again, it's, I have to say, just like the old forge, it's not the internet. It's not, it's not the old, just like the forge wasn't the old internet. This isn't the new internet. You know, like I said, there's no like buttons. You're not going to, you know, click on it again an hour later and it'll all be different. You know, that's not going to be the case. Well, there's a lot of places that have that, Ron, right? So it's not like that that, uh, demand is not being fed. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Well, again, Ron, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure I'm going to come up with another excuse to talk you into coming on again. And uh, Uh, for those of you that... Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads
Are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care.